10. Good evening, good evening, and welcome to the other side of midnight. This is Kinthea, and I'm co-hosting tonight with Keith Morgan. Richard is on standby, but the power has gone out. It's raining where he is. So here we are to enjoy another evening together. And we've got a great show lined up for you. I want to welcome you. Our show tonight is, um, well, our guest is Jared Eastman, and the show is called Beyond the Pentagon Report, The Identities and Agendas Behind UFOs. So we're going to go straight into our conversation with Jared. I'm going to introduce him, and uh, it's going to be a wonderful evening. So Jared Eastwood, Gerald Eastwood, was born in Louis. Forgive me. Gerald Eastwood was born in Louisville and attended a Midwestern university where he obtained a degree in mathematics. At the university, he became interested in astronomy as a hobby and took all available courses. As another pastime in college, he obtained a commercial pilot's license. His interests and background in science led him to pursue the most powerful story of our time, UFOs and the mystery behind them. Bringing together his natural research and writing talents, he produced a trilogy of books on the deep state. Realizing the impact of how intelligence agencies actually operate, this led him to formulate the plan to write Beyond the Pentagon UFO Report, in which he analyzes government documents and private cases to support the association, to support the assertion that the government knows far more than they claim regarding the UFO topic. So welcome to the other side of midnight, Gerald. Are you there? Welcome. I'm here. Good evening to uh, everyone. It's good to be here. I'm glad to have you here, and I appreciate you being flexible. I know Richard wanted to be leading this show, and at the last minute, I'm stepping in, and I'm sure that this will go just fine. So I've never met you before. We've never had a conversation, and I'm curious to know what led you to UFOs. What? How did you come to explore this uh, area, this topic? Well, it's it's a very imaginative, creative topic. Uh, it impacts our culture. Uh, it when I first started reading and researching books uh, many many years ago. The uh, the thing that struck me was that these objects can appear to be able to materialize and disappear at will. They appear to be almost windows into a different reality. Uh, so it looked like for a while, I thought perhaps like Jacques Bali, we were dealing with another dimension that lives in a parallel universe. Uh, now at the Pentagon, they were analyzed to a certain level but the scope was extremely limited. Luis Elizondo is a very smart individual, and he had the backing of Bigelow Aerospace. He had a $22 million budget, but he had extremely limited scope. 
he did he they didn't get into any of the classic cases so uh since 1947 as you know a considerable number starting with roswell approaching thousands of if not tens of thousands of these sightings came in close to the ground usually in rural areas and they left traces physical traces and had sometimes various effects on the human observers so, so Gerald, it, yes go ahead yes so did you have an experience yourself that led you to be curious about these this phenomena because i've also often wondered about them coming from parallel realities and i'm wondering like what led you to this well to be honest we did have a uh, condominium on a remote mountain a 5000 foot high mountain uh in the southeast and i remember one afternoon my wife was taking a shower in the middle of the day but i was sitting out on the balcony and i did see in the distance a couple that almost looked like dimes you know round saucer shaped objects which were flying at very high speed probably several miles away i would say they were flying at hypersonic speed and then they suddenly disappeared and then about 5 minutes later it looked like a couple of f18s flew over the mountain and they in fact they flew about 150 feet above where i was living very low over the top of this 5000 foot mountain so i don't know what that was all about i have no idea but that's about the only personal experience i've had in that regard what state was that in what state were you in then i was in uh, severeville tennessee oh, the tennessee. Uh, mountain was overlooking gatlinburg tennessee and how long ago was that uh it was about 15 years ago i see we had a a guest a couple guests last week um that were reporting on the uh UFO sightings around the around the world and and across the United States and I wish they were on they could give us the figures for Tennessee <laughs> yeah I, I I remember the first time I heard a really bizarre report was from um Robert Dean, Bob Dean who had classified clearance and he was talking about these UFOs that came out in England that were flying at like 3000 miles an hour and um I'm just uh, thinking about your experience of seeing these and so that was what hooked you. I would say that had a certainly had an influence. I got into it quite a bit more after the experience. Uh-huh. What did your wife think of it? she did not see anything she was in the middle of a shower and shampoo at the time and oh, she right. I told her afterwards all right so continue so then that so you saw this sighting and then how what was your next step towards well, becoming more involved well i probably increased my i probably increased my research and reading at that point substantially um it had been still even at that point some years since i attended a university and uh i was about to semi retire uh within 5 to 10 years of that point so since i am now currently in that position i obviously have a lot more time and i i started a podcast called the uh well, i've recently termed it this year the pentagon ufo 
Report podcast. And uh, it again, the Pentagon UFO report is very light. It's uh, very, uh, it's almost fluff, I would call it. Now, they did deliver a much more serious version of it to Congress, probably 70 to 100 pages. And instead of three videos, they probably covered 15. So that was shown to a select group of senators and congressmen. So I decided to write a book beyond the Pentagon UFO report by Gerald Eastwood, now available on Amazon. I decided to go ahead and put that book together. And I've decided to do about a 170-page book. I wanted my book to reflect what the classified report probably should have contained. So did you have an opportunity to see what they were presenting in that in the in the briefing? Well, the the briefing that was released to Congress that was released to the public as you know was 9 to 13 pages. Yeah, nothing and, really. And it, it was nothing. The classified briefing, I've heard sources say what it contained and they said it was mind-blowing. Um the uh they had a they had a tremendous level of resources behind them. They had uh, uh, Luis had uh, Robert Bigelow. You know he's an American businessman. He owns the hotel chain Budget Suites. Uh, he's the founder of Bigelow Aerospace, and he's been interested in this topic for for most of his career. Uh, in the mid 90s, he founded what's called the National Institute for Discovery Science to research various fringe sciences and paranormal topics. And he's the owner, or used to be the owner, I should say, uh, from I think 1996 to 2016 of Skinwalker Ranch. That's a 480-acre cattle ranch located in Utah. And some believe this is the site of an interdimensional doorway. What does uh, he think? He, oh, he absolutely, he is, he is, quote, absolutely convinced, unquote, that aliens exist and have visited the Earth. Does he think of them as aliens or extraterrestrials? I mean, I don't think that that's the same thing. You're right. It probably is not. But he does call them, uh, the latest, that quote that I was mentioning, he called them aliens. Uh-huh. Has he ever seen one or just? The, uh I don't know, to be honest, exactly what he has or hasn't seen, but I have read um, some proprietary reports out of Skinwalker Ranch in Utah. There was a an employee there named Chris Marks. He, he wrote a number of reports while at the ranch, some as frequently as every day. And they were about specific incidences which occurred on the ranch. And um, when the government was sponsoring research, he had a contract with the DIA out there to do uh, some paranormal research. Uh, and when when the DIA was sponsoring him, and I'm talking pre-ATIP, pre the the Pentagon UFO report uh, research project, I'm talking years ago. One copy of each report went out to the uh, sponsor of the Pentagon. One copy to Bigelow. Anyway, Mark's carbon copy some of the reports to himself, and I have here a few bullet points just to show you the strange phenomenon. I'm, I'm almost hesitant to read a few of these to you, but it, would you like to hear them? Okay. All right. These are some of the unusual experiences, uh, paranormal episodes while at the ranch. This is out of one of Chris's reports. One was apparitions. They had game cameras on the property. Uh, one captured images of transparent type things 
artifacts, including images of a human shape in 1860s garb. These are the type of things that occurred out at the ranch. Uh, they noticed unusual odors, the observation of a sulfur smell, um, photographic images. At one stage, he set up a camera and took about a thousand images over five days in black and white. And in some photographs, there were light spots which were not caused by dust particles. In some images, there was a transparent human-like silhouette. And one of the most bizarre incidents was when he was patrolling the West Gate with his dogs late one afternoon and walking past, I think, what a property called Homestead 2, he had a sense that he was being watched. So he looked up on a mesa, saw a person. It was just after sunset. The person uh -huh. was looking at Chris. Chris thought it was a trespasser. He called out to the man, but he did not respond. Chris could see the person's head and legs and arms, but not the face. And uh, the person then turned eastwards. He started bending at the waist with his arms straight out. He fell forward. As he touched the ground, Chris said he turned into a wolf. And oh the animal yeah, then walked behind a rock formation and uh, was lost to view. The, there was an approaching electrical storm, so, so he returned to the ranch and told the caretakers what happened. So next day, they all went up to the mesa. And there in the mud, they found human tracks, then canine tracks that walked away. So he took so there's photographs. like a werewolf story. Yeah, measured the tracks, took DNA scrapings. Anyway, took it to a vet for analysis. The vet said the tracks were likely those of a wolf. He never did hear the results of any of the other tests. So that's Skywalker Ranch. That's Robert Bigelow. He's part of the whole situation. Yeah, a skinwalker oh you met, not Skywalker. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, Keith Keith Morgan is also co-hosting, and I was just going to say, Keith, I'm sure you want to jump in. So feel free. This is a conversation. <laughs> yeah, he, he said uh, Skywalker, but he meant skinwalker. Skidwalker, right? absolutely. Yeah. Uh, like the, the ancient shaman, yes. Yeah, Skywalker Ranch is uh, George Lucas's uh, production no. in <laughs> company. Right. I don't want to bring George into this. Right. That's that's uh, named after an ancient shaman. Uh, yeah, it sounds like what you, you, you described was a transformation of what they called the skinwalker. And there's supposed to be a, a, a film footage or a video of um, a transformation, actually, that I think is floating around YouTube. It actually shows what looks like a human turning into a wolf and running off. So... There's a lot of stuff going on. I, I've been watching the, the uh, Secret of Skinwalker Ranch, and the stuff that they're looking at has just been phenomenal. Uh, orbs in the sky, beams of light that can't be seen with the, the naked eye but can show up in the uh, their infrared uh, cameras. Um, then they had uh, took the helicopter up. They were going to go up to uh, something like 5,000 uh, feet above the ranch and then they got an indication that there was something underneath their helicopter at like 50 feet below them and they couldn't see anything but then i i noticed in the video that the camera that was looking underneath the helicopter the ground was doing some kind of weird thing like something was distorting the geometry of the ground and i think it, it was something cloaked underneath of them but they just couldn't see it it it's if anybody's going to break this, it's probably going to be Skinwalker Ranch because there's a lot of stuff going on with that. Um, 
and ancient aliens they're they are also pushing this whole thing um i've 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 told them stuff that they didn't know about uh, but I think those kind of shows are what are going to actually push people into the next generation of um understanding about our place in the universe so um so you you had uh sightings yourself right yes, I would say I had at least at least one absolutely yeah i've had uh i've had several sightings um of the first kind i guess is uh or the second kind where i actually see the craft um the first one that got my attention was in high school and i was at high point high school in bellsville maryland and it's called high point for a good reason because i could look back into dc from the second floor and see the the Shrine of the Immaculate Conception, for, and that's a fur piece away between Beltsville and D.C. And I was the, the uh, I was the drum major for the marching band, and we had just finished marching band practice. And I was sitting on the steps of the band room waiting for my father to pick me up, and one of the other band members was waiting with me. And out of the corner of my eye, I see this light moving parallel to the horizon. And it is screaming. And I said to the guy, hey, look at this plane. This guy's got his foot in the tank. And this thing makes a 90 degrees turn straight up. Got a 45. Cuts back at another 45. Still climbing. Makes some other maneuvers. I'm now standing up going, what the heck am I looking at? And then it just was gone. And the band member waiting with me said, you know, I live over there. And every now and then we see that and we don't know what it is. And to this day, I still remember his name. And his name was Adate Chewy Chewy Kui. And this was 1973. And we called him Chewy, and it was before Star Wars came out. So that was my first sighting. And it got me curious. But I didn't get into this until Phil Class insulted me when he was on Nightline with Stanton Friedman. And I told him that story. And when I met him in the hall, when Ted and I were going going down towards the studio, and he looked at me and said, oh, you saw a spaceship from Alpha Centauri. And that's when I decided, oh, I'm going to either prove him right or I'm going to prove him wrong. So I started investigating this on a heavy level. And that's when I bought Richard Hoagland's book, The Monuments of Mars, Gary Kinder's Light Years, um, and a whole sort assortment of books on this and started reading and it was actually Richard Hoagland's book that um, really made sense about the mathematics and how things were aligned on on Mars in the Sidonia region and that's what led me to find my discovery of the Morgan curve and that was after NASA manipulated my camera crew along with the rest of the media away from Goddard Space Flight Center but I'm sitting out there in a packed auditorium wondering where the heck is my camera crew? And I thought ABC thought it was too stupid to send a crew for until I got home, turned the TV on and Dan rather goes today, NASA held a briefing about Mars and I'm going, wait a minute, there's no camera crews there. What am I looking at? And it turns out that NASA had sent out a press release that released that day, announcing a briefing about Mars at the national press club and everybody who was supposed to go out to Goddard, including my camera crew that was supposed to be out there with me went down to the National Press Club, and NASA gave them a, a ration of stuff about, oh, we're going back to Mars with the Mars Observer, and we plan to have a manned mission 
to Mars by the end of the century. And there was no manned mission to Mars by the end of the 20th century. Okay. We're now in the 21st century and there's still not a plan to get to Mars except for Elon Musk's plan. So, so Keith. Oh, and let me stop talking. <laughs> I will run on. Anyway. So the government is always like hiding things. And I'm really curious to know what does Gerald think about the history of the government's investigation into the UFO phenomenon? Well, I'll tell you, I was, uh, I love hearing uh, Keith and his stories, but um, I also happened just by chance to be reading one of Richard's books this weekend. Uh, I think it was called Dark Matter, uh, about the mm-hmm. history of NASA. Dark Mission. And Dark Mission, that's yeah. it. And it, I must compliment Richard because um, I found something in that book that that I discovered only after about a year of research. And I don't know of any other researcher writer who has discovered it, but he had it in the book. And what he said was, if you go back to the 1950s or even earlier, when NASA was being formed, there were three groups that basically formed NASA. And that's the reason it's so strange as it is today. And it has always been, and the, the three groups were, uh, it was combined of uh, Dr. Warner von Braun and his uh, ex-Nazi friends. Uh, the second group was uh, a lot of 33-degree uh, Scottish Rite Freemasons who knew how to kept secrets. And the third group was some proponents of a, uh, a new religion uh, that was somewhere out in California, London, and Mexico uh, that was uh, propagated by uh, probably the most occult feet person or personage of the uh, of two centuries ago, Alistair Crowley, and uh, uh, and a couple of his followers. And, and, and these are the types of people that, that were, were initially involved in JPL and NASA. So if you wonder why, you know, NASA's never a straight answer, I think that can probably answer it. Now, they, they say it's a civilian organization, but it really has to report to the Pentagon and to the National Security Agency because anything to do with anything related to national security has to pass their okay first. So it it is it's a quasi-civilian organization, but it really isn't. Well, in the Washington Post in 1965, when I was looking up articles um, about Mars from 1924, I came across an article in the, New York, uh, in the Washington Post, 1965, and this small article was talking about how unions at NASA were upset because key positions were being given to retired military personnel. The charter says that only civilians can run NASA and no military personnel. Now, these retired people are technically civilians, so they had this loophole, but these guys still had their allegiance to the military and their confidential uh, oaths and so forth. So if they were told to put their fingers on something, they would do it. And that was just before we went to the moon. And nobody saw that article. And it was just a little tiny article, but it, it talked about how the unions were definitely upset about that kind of stuff going on. So what do you think about that? Well, I, uh, NASA uh, is I, – I just don't trust them. I'm, I'm very much in line with, with um, Ural's views on the organization. 
Uh, in fact, I have got in my book, and I don't know if we have time, I guess we have at least five minutes before break, but if we have about five minutes, I have one of the strangest episodes, uh, I would say, in history on uh, what happened with a couple of guys from the uh, Defense Intelligence Agency and the National Security Agency, and a friend of mine who is a PhD in divinity out in uh, Nebraska, Dr. Ray uh, Bomi. So if we have a few minutes, I can just give you a quick briefing. Would that be okay? Sure, go ahead. We've got five minutes. Okay, good, good. So let's take a look at it. This has got to be one of the strangest stories you've ever heard, but it's entirely true. And I can vouch for Dr. Ray Boucher's credentials, including his doctorate in divinity. He was also, uh, for a number of decades, the Nebraska State Director for the Mutual UFO Network. Here's the story. He was approached and met on Monday, November 25th, 1991, with two men who identified themselves as being associated with the NSA in Fort Meade and the DIA in D.C. He was told there were various gruesome and sudden unexplained deaths in a special ops program. Ray said that his sources personally showed him graphic photos of three of the dead. They died during an experiment, a special ops experiment. He was shown photographs of three dead people in their late 20s and 30s who looked like they were in something like dentist chairs and hooked up to EKG machines. They died during an experiment, a black ops study. They each died a bizarre, strange death. He was shown uh, 12 photographs of the three dead from different angles. The experiment had basically gone over its head, and they didn't understand what transpired. So they, the the two government people, decided to contact him for guidance and opinions. And uh, he wrote a, a, a letter to all interested researchers. It's one or two paragraphs. Uh, I've got an edited version of it here. And uh, let's just see. He says... Divulging this information for me was the result of a moral dilemma when these two individuals became alarmed at the course their research efforts into psychotronic weapons and extraterrestrials was taking under the direction of their unnamed superiors. They described in an effort to contact and attempt to control what they referred to as non-human intelligences for military and intelligence uses. And uh, their efforts had progressed well past attempts at practical applications of the theoretical physicist David Baum's theories. And it had grown to encompass the use of, according to their statements, quote, ritual magic along the lines of that espoused by Alastair Crowley, unquote. So these gentlemen stated to Dr. Ray their concerns that even when they were apparently able to harness or channel these forces, for ostensibly good uses, the forces would turn, and ultimately all of those subjects suffered varying degrees of negative effects from that contact. And um, so contact with them has continued on a limited basis, but no new information is forthcoming. And you can't really document it beyond what uh, Dr. Boucher says, because again, these are uh, people in, in dark suits. Uh, they may or may not even be using their real names. They both represented themselves as physicists with uh, NSA and DIA in Fort Meade in Washington, D.C. So there are experiments going on. 
and this one apparently had a an unfortunate end but uh it, it is positive that that these things are occurring and uh some of them have had some uh, negative consequences and there have been a lot of ufo sightings where uh they've had strange and bizarre deaths that have occurred subsequent to the sightings so uh there was a military incident i recall of in vietnam in the 1960s where a patrol boat uh down a river uh near the dmz uh shot at one of the uh these lights that was approaching it and the light returned fire and literally blew the boat out of the water killing everyone so there are strange and bizarre cases uh, where deaths have occurred, where fatalities have occurred, and there have been experiments like this uh, that uh, are totally unexplained. So we're dealing with something very real, and uh, even though for the most part it seems benevolent, there are occasional incidents like this of very extreme behavior. Okay, Gerald. We are now at the bottom of the hour. Uh, you're listening to The Other Side of Midnight, and uh, you have our hosts, are Kinthea and Keith Morgan. And we will return right after this break. As you continue to work on yourself, the tribe comes forward. They'll come right to your door. So just keep doing the work and it'll come together. Yep, as you increase your frequency, then you become more mature in your manifestation abilities and your other higher senses and gifts come online and then you have more power to make your world different and better and how you want it. And so that's why working on yourself is so important because then you're going to create the reality that you want rather than get sucked into the dystopia that's being created by the negative or shadow side. We're becoming uh, Renaissance men and women where we have multiple skill sets and we can dance from science into art and we can use both sides of our hemispheres and we can realize how much we have to really offer and uh, grow into. And this is what's happening now. This is where we're headed, into a really beautiful place. So we can rejoice in that despite the fear, despite what it looks like on the outside. This is how disease transforms. The mess in the chaos is necessary in order to see what you have before you so you can clean it up and just make decisions to change your reality. If you don't see it, how do you know it's there to even be changed? Or if you ignore it, right? Then how can you make the differences? You can't. So the mess is before us. Accept our mess. And now know that that's part of empowerment to be able to see and to be able to transform it. Hi, this is Amanda Vollmer, and I was on the other side of the news and I really enjoy my time discussing deeper topics and really getting to the heart of truth and the things that matter in this world and what we are doing and why we're here and, and what we're heading towards. 
I really recommend listening in and, and learning, uh, expanding your awareness and your knowledge. It's important and these are the times to do it and we're being asked to pay attention and to challenge ourselves and uh, think beyond, beyond the box. And welcome back to the other side of midnight. Uh, tonight's show is the Beyond the Pentagon Report, the identities and agendas behind UFOs. Our guest is Gerald Eastwood. Uh, no relationship to Clint Eastwood, but still Eastwood. So, Gerald, let's pick up where you left off. Um, you were talking about the um, the event that was pretty, I think I pretty well know about that one. Um, but uh, you had another one that you want to talk about? Right. Uh, yeah, Nick Redfern uh, wrote about that in uh, one of his books, and uh, you can also read about it there. He he did a lot of verification on it, but it uh, it's a very strange case. The um, There have been a lot of cases down in South America, uh, more than any other region of the world, of uh, unusual effects caused by these close encounter sightings. Um, I remember there was a case, uh, Jacques Bali investigated a very strange case in the town of Anolema in Colombia in July of 69. Uh, there were multiple witnesses tracking a large bright UFO in the sky above the city. And when the craft landed on a hilltop, uh, this fellow Arsicio approached the site. He saw a spherical object at a height of about 12 meters that was emanating a very strong amber light. And he observed a humanoid aboard the craft in the cockpit. It projected a beam of light onto him, and then it suddenly rose above the trees. It disappeared quickly. It let forth a burst of light before rising above the trees. It disappeared from sight. So over the next few hours, his skin developed blue spots. He awoke the next day shivering and cold. In three days, they had to take him to Bogota for medical treatment. Uh, he was cold to the touch. His sister leaned against him. She felt the same coldness over that part of her body. The nurses could not even draw blood samples. It appeared his blood had crystallized. He was in a state of hypothermia. So the local newspaper, El, El Spectador, Dr. Emerald is quoted as saying the patient was very ill. He was presented in cardiac condition, third-degree dehydration. Nothing could be done for him. He did not have a temperature reading. I'm speaking from a medical standpoint, he said. So um, he lasted only a few days. And then uh, they tried to find his body again after about six years after he passed away to transfer his remains to a final resting place. But someone had... Uh, removed uh, the body, it was gone, his body was missing. So there's a, there's two or three similar cases to this that I can think of offhand. And uh, a lot of these bizarre sightings and deaths have occurred in South America. Um, so I, I, again, but what I've mentioned, and you are apparently very familiar with it, I know you're very knowledgeable, that actually occurred probably in you know an air-conditioned building under strict medical supervision and so forth and those people uh, were remotely uh by whatever the experiment was they were hooked up to ekgs they thought everything would be fine 
And uh, there was no UFO sighting at the time, but again, they were trying to do some, uh, uh, some, uh, some sort of magical art contact with uh, non-human entities, and it didn't go well. But in terms of routine UFO sightings, 99.9% of them are, are interesting and, and, and actually fascinating. Uh, and there's only a very small percentage of these, um, of these other cases that, that cause illness or death or, or, or bizarre ends to the encounters. So uh, what do you think? Uh, do, you think there's a, do you think there's a hostile element in this, this population? Uh, if there's a hostile element, uh, it's, it's human, not, uh, non-human. I think that, uh, these guys have been in contact with extraterrestrials for the longest time. Uh, my opinion is that they gave our governments of the world an ultimatum and gave them a deadline to tell everybody or make us aware that they exist. And that deadline is quickly approaching and I think they are making an effort now to make themselves known to us because uh, the governments of this world have been trying to keep the quiet and play this game with the, with the people of the planet. And they think that they can, I guess, spin a scenario that they want to spin because they think most people don't really know what's going on. Um, when, when you have people who think that the world is flat and that there is uh, uh, stolen elections and things like that, then you don't know where you're going to go because people have different opinions, different viewpoints, and we're supposed to be in the 21st century going forward, but it seems like we're taking steps backwards. Uh, and I think these guys know that we have to go forward I think the government knows that we have to go forward because they can't release new technologies without uh, introducing them and letting us know that they exist. Uh, I think, you know, they have stuff and I think they have anti-gravity because Ben Rich said, you know, we could take ET home tomorrow. We have the ability to travel amongst the stars. Uh, He said that, if you've seen it on Star Trek, Star Wars, we've been there, done that, found it wasn't practical. We've got stuff that would make George Lucas drool. But these things are locked up in such black projects that it would take an act of God to get them released. So Ben Rich is telling us, hey, these things are real. Some of them are ours. Philip Corso, he said you know, in the day after Roswell, it was his job to disseminate the technology from the crash at Roswell into our societies through their government contractors, and he would bring parts to government contractors working on something similar to the devices and said, okay, here, you come up with the way that you discovered this, but here's something to help you along, but you never saw me. And that's how he got the technology into our society. And when he passed on, his son, I met him at an ex-conference, and he said to me, you know, I, I'm afraid. I don't know what to do. I don't even know I'm here. Uh, I'm supposed to talk, but uh, I'm, we've been getting phone calls from people telling us, don't, don't say anything else. Don't release any more books, et cetera. And I said, your father did the right thing. And 
he he's trying to do the right thing and let everybody know that they're being lied to and they've been being lied to for the longest time. And this technology just didn't come up out of no place. And, and for them to say, yeah, well, our geniuses came up with this. No. Ben Rich said that there was a flaw in the mathematics, but they figured it out. And that's what gave them the ability to build these craft to get us between the stars. And we have them. And if the TR3B is one of the things that they said that we have, then it's a technology that needs to be made available to the public. But I'm seeing all these other things like brilliant light power and the sapphire. Those guys have figured out how the universe really works, which is what Sidonia was telling us about hyperdimensional energies and so forth, and that this is a electromagnetic universe, not a nuclear universe. And the sun is not a fusion reactor. It's running off an electromagnetic property of hyperdimensional shunning energy across. And this is what Sidonia is telling us. This is what is where we're headed. We're headed into that world where Nicole Tesla said that, hey, we can run everything off electricity. We've been burning things since the days of, of cavemen, and it's time to get off of it. It's time for us to move into that realm where the electromagnetic spectrum can be tapped into directly, and we can use that energy. And bring in light power, the hydrogen they said the, the universe is mainly hydrogen, but then there's a version of hydrogen where the electron is closer to the nucleus, and they call it hydrinos, hydrinos, dryons, uh, and that's the dark matter. So a whole new physics is starting to come out. Nobody wants to go that direction, but there are companies, or, or I should say scientists, <laughs> that are coming up with this stuff. Keith? I'm doing it again, aren't I? You are doing it again. I love you. <laughs> so, uh, Gerald, what do you think about these new technologies? Well, I appreciate Keith's comments. Very interesting. Uh, and when did this all start? It probably started with Roswell because I'm looking right now, in fact, at a affidavit, a deathbed affidavit that was to be opened after he passed away of Walter Hout, who was the... Uh, public relations officer at the uh, the bomber wing there in, in Roswell, who was involved in the uh, multiple, you know, that, oh, it, it, we found it, it, there's something to it, and then they retracted it, said it was a weather balloon and all that. So you've got, you know, an atomic bomber group, the elite, and they're supposedly making mistakes. Nobody really believed they did make a mistake. But anyway, um, he said in this uh, deathbed affidavit, and I've got a copy of it in front of me, he, uh, I'll read just one or two sentences from it. He said, um, before leaving the base, Colonel Blanchard took me personally to Building 84, a B-29 hangar. I observed it was under heavy guard. Once inside, I was permitted from a safe distance to first observe the object just recovered north of town. It was 15 foot in length, not quite as wide, six feet high. Lighting was poor. The surface did appear metallic. No windows, portals, wings, tail section, or landing gear were visible. And then he said, from a distance, I was able to see a couple of bodies under a canvas tarpaulin. Only the heads extended beyond the covering. I was not able to make out features. 
And um, then he said, I was informed of a temporary morgue set up to accommodate the recovered bodies. And he said he was informed that the record, the wreckage was not hot or radioactive. So this is what he released or had released uh, a week after he passed away. And, and uh, Keith, this reminds me, we started to talk, you and I personally, when we chatted a few days ago uh, about Bob Lazar in Area 51. And uh, a lot of people say, was Bob Lazar for real or wasn't he? I believe he was totally for real because he passed a polygraph. So he, he believes he's telling the truth. Um, the, the only thought I have, and Keith, I didn't share this with you before, but everybody's heard of Bob Lazar. I won't repeat the story and everybody knows it, but I do have a novel thought on it, which I didn't share with you the other day, but I'd like to now. And my only thought is this, was he set up for a short time in Area 51? In other words, had they psychologically profiled him? They knew he was very independent, and they knew he was very bright. They knew he, he was the kind that might talk. In other words, let him talk, and then we will then discredit him, and no one will ever believe anything from that point. So is that a possible direct solution to this uh, enigma of why Bob Lazar was employed for only a year, but he did discover a lot, and then he reversed his tune and decided to to talk? Of course, we can't know for sure, but it's a possibility. Well, and these are the kind of chess moves that they would make um, because they're always staying one step ahead. And they know they have to get to this point where they have to get up off of this. I mean, just rip the Band-Aid off. Tell everybody, hey, this is what's going on. But they still have this doubt that people can handle the truth. So Bob Lazar... He told us the truth, told us about Element 115 years before it ever got created by the Russians as Moscomium, and we call it Ununpinium. But yet here we did get to a Element 115, which is supposed to be an island of stability. And when you get to the higher elements, you start getting decay, so it gives off radiation but when you get to these islands of stability, they become stable and they don't give off radiation. And according to Bob Lazar, they would shoot a proton into the element 115, making it element 116, where it would immediately start to decay, giving off antimatter. It fell down a tomb chamber into matter, and there's 100% annihilation. They had a 100% thermocouple, which would convert this energy directly, heat energy directly into electrical energy, which then drove the gravity amplifiers, which took the, the A wave from the nucleus of the atom, threw it out of phase with the B wave, which is the gravity wave that holds us to the earth, and now you've got anti-gravity. So a lot of what he said makes a lot of logical sense, but Stanton Friedman, he just had a, a thing against Bob Lazar because, he, oh, no, he's, he's not a physicist. He doesn't I think Bob Lazar is telling us the truth. I think he's still telling us the truth. And I think this is all part of disclosure and how things are going to come out. I don't think there's going to be a true disclosure. I think it's going to be a global first contact. And I think the guys who are flying these craft and not our craft that we created, but the other entities, they're the ones that are going to make the um, first contact known to the world. Watch. I bet you it's going to happen. What do you think, Gerald? 
Well, it it very well could be. That's a that's a very high statistical probability. The um, the strange thing is the strange thing about this whole situation is in America, we've encountered various levels. I mean, you go back to Project Sign, Grudge, Blue Book. Um, they were uh, whitewashing most of the incidents. Uh, then you have this this very light, fluffy report that came out that cost everybody twenty two million. Of course, Congress got an upgraded version, but you know it really doesn't tell us too much. But let me let me just point this out because this is very interesting. You know, the Soviet Union, as we once knew it, it it's gone ever since uh, uh, Glasnost and so forth. And vast amounts of information are flowing out of Russia about experiences with UFOs, and they don't have the government holdbacks that we have here. Uh, the uh, Soviet Military Review has published a lot of uh, detailed articles, and uh, I've got a couple notes here. There's a uh, Colonel Mar- Marina Popovic held a press conference some years ago, and during this conference, she showed amazing photographs of a cigar-shaped alien craft in space that was 15 miles long, taken by a Russian space probe, which then mysteriously stopped working and then disappeared completely shortly after taking the photos. Now, she's a colonel in the Soviet Armed Forces and the wife of the famed cosmonaut Havel Popovich. Uh, He was head of a Soviet committee on UFOs. And uh, here are some things he has to say. He says he's seen photographs of alien human children. Uh, He said Soviet satellites have taken photographs of UFOs and Soviet satellites have Soviet scientists, rather, have concluded that flying saucers have been around as long as our planet. Uh, They've had around one atomic energy plant in the Slovak Republic, at least 70 UFO incidents. And um, they've got, there's a scientist, oceanographer, and former Soviet sub-captain, Dr. Vladimir Azaza. He stated that UFOs transmorph going from one shape to the other. They can materialize and dematerialize at will. He said the craft and occupants are varied and maybe from dozens of different sources and civilizations. Well, that's an amazing statement. That, By the way, the Soviets have also confirmed that they have pictures of the moon's surface that show large objects clearly made by intelligent beings. Um, They've seen uh, at least, I think, eight huge obelisks or monuments shaped like our Washington Monument in D.C. and dozens of smaller, but I think evenly spaced monuments congruent with those of the pyramids of, uh, of Egypt. So uh, it, it's, our government is, is very, uh, it's like pulling teeth to get information out of them. But other countries, it's, they're much more uh, amenable to, uh, to release of data. Aren't the Japanese also very open to sharing information about that? I, don't they have like a UFO museum? I think they do. I think they do. Every major country, uh, every major first world country has done has done a, at least a two-year study or a five-year study or a 12-year study. In Russia, uh, they did about a, a 13-year study that they finally released the results of in the 1990s. In Brazil, in the late 70s, they did a two-year study, uh, the Air Force did, on about 2,000 sightings. And, uh, you know, some people say, well, you know, 50% of those can't be explained. Well, yeah, but that still leaves the other 50%. 50% right. can be 
so there's uh, there there been some extraordinary incidents. There's one. There's one that I think can, if I have been probably two or three minutes to discuss it, that um, happened in Tehran, Iran, uh, back in the days of the uh, Shah of Iran before the uh, the government uh, switched. Uh, it's a, I have a declassified DIA document that was released under the Freedom of Information Act. It reveals that on 19 September 76. A highly unusual incident occurred over Tehran, and this document was not made public until it was not declassified and obtained through a Freedom of Information Act until the late 90s. So what happened is the Imperial Iranian Air Force command post at Tehran received phone calls of unidentified objects in the sky, and there were no helicopters airborne, so the assistant deputy commander of operations himself saw an object brighter and larger than a star. He scrambled an F-4, and it took off, and it proceeded about 40 nautical miles north. And uh, what happened was when the F-4 came to within 25 miles of the object, the jet lost all instrumentation and communications, everything. Then the pilot broke off the intercept, and he turned away. And when the F-4 had turned back towards the airport, the aircraft regained instrumentation and so forth. And a second F-4 was scrambled, and it acquired a radar, lock, a radar lock on the object at 27 nautical miles. And he, he said the radar signature resembled that of a Boeing 707. So he closed in on the object. When he got 25 miles away, the object began to move. He said it was hard to look at because it was very bright like a diamond, alternating blue, green, red, and orange in a square pattern. And um, is the Did object... Did you say anything about the shape of it? I was, it was a diamond. A diamond. It was a square. A square. And he said the lights flashed in sequence, but it was so rapid they could all be seen at once. But uh, anyway, uh, what happened was, the interesting thing is, a smaller second object detached itself from the first and advanced on the F-4 at a high rate of speed. So he launched a Sidewinder missile. As soon as he tried to do that, he lost all instrumentation, including weapons control. He lost all communication. So then he instituted a turn, a negative G dive, his evasive action. He returned to base. The object fell in behind him, and uh, then it turned and rejoined the primary object. So um, then the F-4 crew saw another brightly lit object attach itself from the other side of the primary object and drop straight down at a high rate of speed. They expected it to impact the ground and explode, but it came to rest gently in a field outside the airport. So anyway, they landed back at uh, Maribad Air Base, and um, a couple of strange things occurred simultaneous to this. A civilian airliner that was approaching the airport experienced a loss of communications uh, just as it was close to the object. And um, what else? I think Maribad Tower reports no other aircraft in the area but they were able to see the object and was, the F go ahead. Was it uh, an Iranian pilot and plane or was it American? Uh, it was an Iranian pilot flying uh-huh. some uh, called F-4s. And the next day they flew out actually to the, to the site where they'd seen the small object land. It was right. a dry lake. They couldn't find any traces, but here's the last interesting point. They did radiation testing of the area. Results were never made public, but the um, 
I think there was a, uh, it was apparently detected by a military spy satellite, a DSP-1, and it noted infrared heat sources. And uh, so it detected, in other words, an infrared anomaly over Tehran at the time of the UFO event. So there you have it. You've got an F-4 jet to investigate. And um, it was, the lights were moving so quickly, all the colors could be seen at once. And the documentation adds the size of the radar return was comparable to that of a 707 tanker, which would have put its length, I think, in excess of a 140 feet. You know, the same things that you talked about, how the pilot lost his weapons control, that's the kind of stuff that's going on at Skinwalker Ranch. People's cell phones that are locked are getting hacked right in front of them, and it's going through their dialing list, trying to dial things and stuff like that. And it's like, how can they hack a phone if, you know, in three tries or four tries, obviously – they're showing that they have the superior technology. And it, it's it, the same thing happened at the, the nuclear silos. They hacked the Russian silo and armed the missiles. And the Russians, I remember that. Yeah, it was about ready to launch. But luckily, they pulled it back and, and left. And the Russians tore everything apart and couldn't find a problem with the whole system. Okay, we are getting closer to the break, though. Um, so, uh, Kenthi, you want to take us out or should I? Uh, okay. Well, you're listening to the other side of midnight. Our guest tonight is Gerald Eastwood and the show is called beyond the Pentagon report, the identities and agendas behind UFOs. And we will return after the break. Thank you. Thereby joining Hoagland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. 
That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed, and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19-point archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available, talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought, and if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because we need all of you. And when I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Oakland, over and out. And welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. Our guest tonight is Gerald Eastwood, and the show is called Beyond the Pentagon Report, The Identities and Agendas Behind UFOs. Uh, Hosting tonight in place of Richard, whose power is down, is Keith Morgan and myself, Kinsia. And Gerald, as you were mentioning earlier, obviously we're not seeing all of the information they've been accumulating on UFOs, which they call UAPs. (laughs) And this nine-page report is ridiculous. And I'm wondering about, you know, the black ops and why are we being kept in the dark? I mean, obviously, other countries aren't doing that, yet they're treating us like children and withholding information, and we know there's so much more. What is your sense of what's going on behind the scenes? Well, other countries, like, um, as I mentioned, the USSR is very open. Britain is very open. I was uh, listening to Nick Pope, who had a three-year contract with the Ministry of Defense in London to research and study UFOs. Um, I was listening to him the other day, and uh, he investigated, of course, the number one incident, which we all know about, in Britain was the Rendlesham Forest uh, incident, and uh, it was an Air Force Base incident, and, and we all know about it, but he researched that and another major wave of sightings in the 90s, and he said the British government is very open. Uh, I believe that. I, I believe the difficulty is here in the United States, and I, I think the pushback extends even to the point of briefing presidents. Uh, John Kennedy got pushed back when he uh, attempted to get uh, UFO information. Eisenhower had uh, problems getting information out of Area 51. There's a very interesting story 
um, which I guess I could really relate very, very briefly here uh, about the uh, Area 51 in Eisenhower. What happened was, you know, remember he said everybody, there's a vast industrial military complex out there. Right. And uh, so guess what? He authorized Area 51, but he got no information from it. Well, so why I know, do you think that they're withholding to the presidents even? I mean, like, who is this? Who Who is this that's behind the scenes? I mean, yeah. our own well, government doesn't have access. I mean, it's ridiculous. I, it's it's quite insane. Of course, there's a top secret clearance, and then there's maybe 25 levels of, of crypto top secret above it. And I'm sure the president is not at the top of that level. So they only tell him what, what they want to tell him. I, my understanding is, for example, with Reagan, Eight days after he got in as president in the 1980s, they gave him a one-hour briefing on UFOs. So, I mean, and if you hear Obama and uh, Clinton, Bill Clinton, if they they were asked by the press on various occasions, and they gave very glib answers, it appeared they knew absolutely nothing. Now, Trump, on the other hand, he had a very telling, brief interview with his son, uh, Don Jr., and uh, Don Jr. was asking him uh, in a public interview, which has been on TV, he said, uh, what about uh, Roswell? What about Roswell? And Donald said, it's very interesting. He said, I can't say anything about it. It's very interesting. He said, there'll be more information to come when this report comes out. Of course, we find out when the report comes out, it's, it, <laughs> it's nothing before 2001. It's only a handful of Navy sightings. And, uh, you know, it, none of the classic cases have been addressed. So uh, I, either they're not telling them anything uh, because they don't have sufficient clearance or they don't want to tell them. Uh, there was a strange uh, byproduct of this Eisenhower situation. Now, I don't know if many people are aware of this or not. But um, I, I have a friend who was a... Uh, had a Q clearance, which is required to access top secret restricted data and national security information. He was involved in, uh, in a project that superseded Blue Book. He received reports from UFOs all over the world. They analyzed them. It was all black ops. And some of his people, are, he himself, I think, uh, in the late 50s, uh, he, um, Eisenhower, he, he and a partner were in charge of a black ops unit in D.C. And uh, when Eisenhower could not get any more information on Area 51, he sent this gentleman and his partner out to Area 51 and told them if they do not release information and give these gentlemen a tour, he was going to call the first army and invade the base and find out what was happening there. So <laughs> Eisenhower told him. him, he said, go to Area 51. Uh, and, uh, he said, tell them I'll take it over if, if, you, if I don't see you within a week. So they acquiesced. And they, they, first of all, they gave him uh, the, you know, the, uh, uh, the bums rush, you might say. They, they gave him a tour of the uh, SR-71 under development, the Blackbird. But then he said, well, what else is there? And he said, well, we have an area called S-4. It's about 15 minutes uh, south of the area. And this is where nuclear physicists reverse engineer technology. He said he toured and he saw alien craft. He said they were made of something like heavy aluminum. He said they flew by reverse electromagnetism. And he said he has copies of mathematical formulas by which they operate. Uh, you got to remember, Black Ops has a $6.5 trillion Black Ops budget. That's the latest number for missing money from the Pentagon. 
Um, anyway, go back to Area 51 and S4. He and his superior were touring S4. A colonel told him they were interviewing a gray alien. He didn't see it, but the colonel told him that they they have such uh, entities there. And uh, the point of bringing him there anyway was to show him the facility so he could go back and brief the president. And Hi. the president had known nothing. So it, from there, uh, he and his partner went back to Washington. They met with the president and also with Nixon. J. Edgar Hoover was in the same room. They, the three of them were told about the whole situation, the black projects. He said the president was totally shocked about the extent of the black programs. He said Eisenhower said the programs must be kept compartmentalized and secret. And I think since then, I, I just don't know if any uh, any presidents had guarantees that they will know anything. You know, I just I just find it so absurd because really disclosure has happened, hasn't it? I mean, we all know. I can't think of anyone that I know that doesn't think that there are, you know, that Area 51 didn't have, you know, isn't hiding a lot of secrets. It's just amazing to me that that we can allow a situation where our own people who are supposedly funding this don't get to see the real evidence. It's shocking. Yeah. Well, they, they would not officially admit to the existence of Area 51 until 2013. But in 1989, the whole thing blew wide open when Bob uh, Lazar and John Lear and so forth were detained after their third visit in March of 1989 to the perimeter of the facility. And then Bob Lazar went public. And I think I think his name was George Knapp. He was a CBS affiliate reporter out in Las Vegas. He broke the story. And uh, actually, he said he did some research. I was talking to Keith about this a few days ago, and I don't know if I mentioned this, but George Knapp did some research, and he found Bob Lazar's name in the directory of his previous employer, the telephone directory of uh, Los Alamos. And there were also some newspaper pictures of him in their uh, their private newspaper. So uh, a lot of people say, well, he was just a cook or something. I, I don't think so. Not if he worked at Los Alamos. Uh huh. Wow. Hey, I I just uh, I'm noticing there's a comment coming in from one of our listeners. I'm going to read it to you, and you can respond. Why should the TR3B be made available to the public? I talked to Stephen Greer, and he told me that the anti gravity uh, anti gravity in the wrong hands of a very is very dangerous. He didn't go into details, but in my mind, it is focused way a focused wave that could be made coherent. You could make an anti gravity laser weapon? Question mark. I held a blueprint in my hands from Hughes Summa Corps in 1972-73 of a writing diagram for an anti gravity device and got into big trouble for reading it, but they couldn't touch me because they had me working with it, and it didn't have a security clearance. It was their fault to have had me there in the first place. I was working a night shift at the graphics arts print shop while in college from Don Johnson. So uh, it apparently, you know, information is getting out there even – when they're not paying attention, they're like pretty careless. 
Bob, can I can I answer that one? Jump in, jump in, Keith. Well, the reason that the the public shouldn't have the TR3B is, yeah, it's not the the craft itself. It's the technology behind it which generates the energy that we could have been on long time ago. It's safer, it's cleaner, and the only reason that we have nuclear power right now is because. Richard Nixon wanted the jobs to go to California who were working on the water reactors or uranium reactors. And in Tennessee, they were working on the thorium reactors or molten salt reactors. The molten salt reactors were a thousand times cleaner than nuclear react, the uh, water reactors. They are 2000% more efficient than the water reactors, but they wanted the jobs to go to California They also wanted to generate the plutonium for their atomic weapons, and uranium reactors do that. But the thorium reactors, thorium is abundant everywhere, okay? The system, the guy that gave us the water reactor, he created the thorium reactor because they wanted to make a nuclear plane, okay? And he came up with this. It's self-regulating. There would be no China syndrome. Because once the temperature gets too hot, the reaction shuts down. Once it cools down to a certain level, the reaction starts back up. They also had another safety feature where the core would drain if the power went out. The fan would keep this drainage pipe cooled so that the molten salt would stay solid until the fan went out. And then it would just melt and drain it into a, a holding tank under the reactor out of the way. And you wouldn't have all the kind of problems that you have with the nuclear reactors we have now. So we've got stupidity going on. Everybody's looking at the dollar factor rather than the safety factor. They didn't care. They wanted their plutonium. Molten salt reactors, their byproduct is uranium. But it takes the uranium back into the system as part of the way of powering the system. So there is no deadly plutonium that you have to cart off and bury someplace. So this technology could have been in place a long time ago. That's what we really need is the technology that powers the craft to take the burden off of a lot of stuff that's going on. But yeah, we should have known. They should have told us. They didn't have to say, oh, well, we got a craft that could take us here and there. Just tell us, hey, we've got a new way of generating energy. Started on that. Then move down the road and tell us the rest of it, what the rest of it is going on, where it's coming from, and that we're not alone in the universe. Simple. But they chose to keep everything quiet and keep everybody in the dark. That's my answer. All right. So, Gerald. Well, I don't know if the craft and the patent, and nobody knows, I don't think, if it's ever been built, but if they have if they have built the technology described in the patents, I'm sure the program is highly classified. Uh, so we're in game-changing territory. Um, it's, it's, it's a, we're, between, we're between fringe science and science fiction, and uh, the, uh, the patent is fascinating. Uh, I think it's one of three patents filed by a U.S. Navy scientist if it's the same one I'm thinking. So, so again, we don't know where we are with it, but, uh, but that's not the TR. That's not the way the TR three B works. Um, I saw a triangular shaped craft back in the day when the Belgium craft sightings were going on 
and it was here in Crofton, Maryland, and it flew over t- treetop level, bright three bright lights with a red light dead center of the triangular lights. Thing is, it didn't light up the top of the trees. It didn't light up the ground. If you didn't look up, you wouldn't have known it was up above you. And I'm going, that's what scared the hell out of me because I didn't realize what was scaring me because I would have got out the car and got looked at it, walked up under it or whatever. But it was producing no light reaching the ground. How the hell do you do that? But I can see the bright three orbs on the bottom of this craft and the red light, but it weren't bright enough to light up the top of the trees because it was almost a treetop level and it didn't reach, the light didn't reach the ground to light up the ground. What kind of technology is that? Okay. I know what I saw. So, and it was dead silent, dead silent, typical dead silent. Why can't we have that technology for the masses to help us move forward rather than them sitting here playing these games. And if they've got a base on the Mars, base on the moon, you just spent $2.6 trillion of the Americans' money and our taxes that we paid into it. And Donald Rumsfeld in 2001 said, oh, there's $2.6 trillion seem to be missing from the military budget. And then everybody got distracted after 9-11 took place. Was that a reason to get everybody looking in the opposite direction? Did they deliberately do that? I don't know. Are they willing to take out those many people just to get people's attention diverted from $2.6 trillion missing from the military budget? That's enough money to build a base on the moon, a base on, the, on, on Mars, and get us, build us a craft to get us between all three planets. But hey, I don't know where they're going with this. But their backs are now against the wall. The cat's out the bag. The media has stopped laughing at this whole thing. They used to chuckle, oh, yeah, UFOs, bud, and laugh all they want. Now they've seen the Navy show us, hey, there's something going on. We need to know. But they're still playing this game because one hand in the military doesn't know what the other hand's doing. So they can't, they don't know how to handle this. They'll keep going, oh, no, this didn't happen. That didn't happen. Roswell did happen. Jesse Marcel told us it happened. He told us that was an unknown craft, and the material that he picked up was not from. So we've got people, Corso, telling us the truth. Jesse Marcel telling us the truth. Ben Rich telling us the truth. We've got all of these people, even Bob Lazar, telling us the truth. And we keep ignoring it because people think, oh, this is impossible. Nothing is impossible. It's just where do we stand in the technology to be able to pull off what we need to pull off? And these guys are way ahead of us in terms of the technology. And so are, so, so is the compartmentalized Lockheed Skunk Works and so forth out there in S4. They all have this technology and we've had anti-gravity for decades but they just didn't let the public know it's time for them to rip the bandit off like i said and just tell us and let me stop talking uh go ahead go ahead uh, uh 
Gerald, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you, Keith. They're, they're, they've got the technology that's at least 50 years, if not more, uh, ahead of our current what we currently know about. The CIA has had, uh, you know, Silicon Valley Group in its pocket for a long time. Remember Vault Seven when WikiLeaks published that those files, um, and they indicated that uh, that uh, they'd obtained thousands of files that exposed the hacking capabilities of the CIA. They called it Vault Vault Seven. So. You know, the CIA and all these groups have a mandate to protect us, but but on the other hand, they, uh, they're they not really fulfilling that mandate. And you mentioned $2.6 trillion. That's what it was exactly right before 9-11, the, the black ops missing budget of the Pentagon. But then about five, six years later, I think it went up to $6.5 trillion. So where does this money go? Now, if you listen to Phil Schneider, somebody like that, uh, uh, Bill Cooper, whatever, they're saying, well, a lot of it went to deep underground military bases. Uh, they're saying a lot of it probably went to uh, the so-called Aurora Project, you know, uh, which is a Mach 5, 125,000 foot level, you know, aircraft successor to the uh, SR-71. With a pulse uh, ramjet engine, yes. Yes. So, I mean, who knows where it's all going. It's probably a diversity of, 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 of uses that, that we will never really know. And as you say, that particular section of the Pentagon happened to be destroyed by that missile or whatever hit the Pentagon. And uh, it's very odd that that, that uh, whole investigation was uh, stopped and uh, brought to a, a standstill uh, with 9-11. Very, very strange. Conveniently and- so. <laughs> Yeah, and why did why did you Keith and I were discussing why did World Trade Center seven why was it imploded? I mean, what was what was there? What it doesn't it's not doesn't make sense. It wasn't affected by the explosions. Why was it imploded? Makes no sense. There must have been too much information in some of those offices that they wanted to uh, destroy. Is the only thing I can think because they did uh, they did implode it. Well, it might have been about real estate because I think the World Trade Centers were becoming a a uh, deficit to the uh, owner who was doing the renting of the offices and so forth. And that might have been one of the reasons, but that's just speculation again. Uh, you hear these rumors of people saying, well, they pulled the buildings because – they they were costing the owner more money than what they were worth, so they pulled the buildings to build new buildings. I I don't know, it, but it's all speculation. Now stuff that I do know, it's not belief. Is that the stuff sitting on Mars is a hundred percent artificial, and that's not a joke because math doesn't lie. So. Yeah. I'm doing it again. Ah, you yeah. are. Let's come back to the UFO discussion. Okay. <laughs> so, Gerald, you uh, you have something you can share with us about the CIA's Vault 7? Well, I do have a few things about it that are, are interesting that just show you, um, you know, what the truth of what's really happening. So let me, here's what we know about the leaked call vault seven. The CIA has malware, which creates backdoors into your smartphones and smart TVs. Your electronic devices are the CIA's microphones. Your PC computer is the CIA's spy via Windows update. Skype chats can be converted into text and stored on CIA clouds. 
cars can be used to carry out CIA assassinations. And uh, it, this, this just goes on and on and on. Vault 7 also says the U.S. consulate in Frankfurt is a covert CIA facility. Consulates are great covers. I suppose that's true. Vault 7 also says, go ahead. So wait, the Vault 7, it's actually a vault, or is that just a term for a type of software? What is Vault? Seven. Oh, Vault 7 refers to a, a, a WikiLeaks. That's just a, a handle, you might call it. Uh, in other words, on March 7, 2017, WikiLeaks published a batch of files that originated from the CIA. And uh, it was thousands of files that basically exposed the hacking capabilities of the CIA and all of its internal organizations. The huge trove of data was just called like by a handle name Vault Seven. Oh, okay, all right, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, go on. So, uh, they Vault Seven also says the CIA can mimic Russian hackers by leaving Russian fingerprints. Well, that's called a frame. It's it's amazing what they can do. So, um, anyway, the the entire intel community, uh, all of these things are coming out. And uh, so one way or the other, I think we're going to discover in the next few years a, uh, a preponderance of evidence, uh, to use a legal term, we're going to discover a preponderance of evidence that, that these uh, alphabet agencies uh, have gone way, way over the, the legal lines of, their, uh, of what's allowed by, uh, by Congress and by the uh, National Security Acts. And I don't think it comes too much as a surprise to us, though. No, no. And especially when they're meddling in foreign politics and setting up countries to to go to war that are totally actually innocent in many ways. Yeah, war, the war powers of the government, of any government yeah, throughout the last centuries, has always been the main way to, to bring an economy to a peak, exercise the war powers, get at war production going and moving uh and that's just uh in fact that's what kennedy fought against he did not want to spend all that money on the vietnam war he attempted to get us out of it he attempted to uh to remove everybody from that theater and look what happened to uh to john f kennedy right right so what in what way does all this tie back into the UFOs and the behind-the-scenes thing, the, the war powers, does it? Well, I, I think uh, if you if you want to talk about the early history briefly, I think we have a few minutes. I can talk about it super quick. Um, talk about JFK and uh, UFOs because this is something that um, – that uh, in fact, I think I was talking to Richard about it a few days ago, and Kennedy wanted to have high threat cases of UFOs reviewed and determine whether they were bona fide or not, and make a clear distinction between known and unknowns. And then he wanted to extend cooperation to the Soviets ten days before he was assassinated. In other words, he was going to release all of our UFO information to the Russians. Um, and the, yeah, this was totally unacceptable to Angleton, uh, uh, James Angleton of the uh, CIA and to the CIA itself. He had just sworn to splinter the CIA into a thousand pieces. 
and to hand over their most guarded secret ever, which were the UFO files. That was not open for discussion, according to the agency, the CIA, and 10 days later, uh, after he suggested that, uh, he was gone. So um, anyway, that's um, that, there's a lot more to it. Um, Kennedy attempted to find UFO intelligence that only the CIA had, but the director of the CIA knew that disclosure to a chief executive was prohibited since he did not have need-to-know clearance. He probably got minimal information, in my opinion, much like the Pentagon report that has recently been you know, released to the public. So this wilderness of mirrors is carried on today. Uh, we've got the uh, Pentagon UFO report, a very highly sanitized version, and that's part, I think, of the smoke and mirrors. Mm. Okay. So well, what's the, bottom the, of the, the Pentagon report? Well, you know, we're coming okay. up on break. I'm not going to open up this next topic. It's too big. <laughs> okay, hold on to that topic. We'll be back. Uh, you're on the other side of midnight. Uh, our guest, our guest is Gerald uh, Eastwood, and our topic is beyond the Pentagon report: the identities and agendas behind UFOs. And we'll return after this break. Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. 
Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Search the archives. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. back to the other side of midnight. Uh, we left off where we were talking about, uh, what is it called? Uh, seven, uh, Bolt 7, with the CIA's um, involvement with the Vault 7. And uh, I wanted to say, my mother worked for Central Intelligence for 38 years. She probably saw more presidents come through Langley than we voted for. And um, there was a, a lot of stuff that uh, I, I think I was privy to, but uh, nothing top secret or anything like that. But there was a, a lot of things involved that uh, that I think my mom kind of showed me inadvertently, not meaning to. But... Um, <clears throat> So uh, let's get back to uh, Gerald. So Gerald, we're going to be talking about uh, the Kennedy assassination probably a little more in the third hour. Um, so we were talking about the Vault 7. Is there any other details about that that you can tell us about? That's the that's the sum total of of, uh, of all the major talking points right there on, on Vault 7. Mm-hmm. Um, the... Um, I would say that uh, just going back to, uh, but it's so important to study history. I would say uh, if, you, if you go back to on the history of UFOs to the 40s, the, I think our first UFO recoveries were made in the 40s, and then came Roswell, which the public found out about. We got a couple live aliens. I think one died shortly and one lived until 56. And then, of course, in the late 50s, uh, just history, NASA was formed to compartmentalize, sanitize data from all space platforms. And we sold NASA to the public, claiming all the info would belong to the people. But they got very little, even that was sanitized. It's a front organization. And I think after Kennedy, we never told any president anything, except Nixon knew because he was briefed as VP under Eisenhower. Now, if you go back a little further, 
many believe James Forrestal, the Secretary of State in the 50s, was the only member of MJ-12 that wanted the public to know the truth. My stepfather, John Stringer, took his autopsy photos. He allegedly jumped out of a 12th or 14th floor window at Bethesda Naval Hospital, and my uh, stepfather took his autopsy photos. Was he thrown? I think he was. Uh, Back then, you had a lot of people. I, I think we are more protected now than they were then, and here's why. Look at, for example, TV personality Dorothy Kilgallen. She was the Barbara Walters of the late 50s and 60s. She was murdered. Supposedly, she uh, too much barbiturates and alcohol, but I'm sure someone, uh, I'm sure that was a cover. She had exclusive rights to interview Jack Ruby. She knew too much, and she made headlines in 55 when she disclosed a private conversation with a British cabinet official who told her that UFOs are real and the U.S. and British authorities consider the matters of the highest importance. So here's the problem back then that they had that we don't have today, so we're really in a much better position. Dorothy uh, had a lot of information on uh, the New Orleans connections to JFK, a lot of uh, information on Jack Ruby, and she made a public announcement that she was going to disclose all of it, I think in a book. But before any of that could come out, uh, you know, she had this sudden mysterious death, and there were reports of men in her apartment that same night, who knows who they were, taking out documents of manuscripts and so on and so forth, and that information never saw the light of day. What we can do now and what we do do now to protect ourselves is media like this. We can instantly deliver an ebook or printed book to Amazon. We can have media that reaches around the world instantly and so we are protected uh we're not as um as much at risk as people like uh her were back in the 60s so the information flow has changed totally which protects us who are the sources so i think we're in a really good position to uh to to find research locate and disseminate this information with minimal risk to us so that's that's again and i I commend all the listeners of shows like this, and I, I commend uh, the the, uh, the uh, media personalities that uh, have put together these large syndicated talk shows because they have provided a platform for distribution of information, which is w- would have been unheard of decades ago and which was not existent back in that time frame way back. Uh, and that's why those people were in so much risk, personal risk uh, and so forth. So, uh, we're in, we're in pretty good shape today. We we've got it made, I think. Yeah. Um. My, speaking of the uh, blank 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 is what my mother would say. <laughs> um. I I met her old boss, uh, George H. Bush, and I worked at ABC. Uh. And he was vice president of the United States at the time. And I told him my mother worked under you when you were director. And he said, Oh yeah, what's your name? Okay, G. Morgan. Oh, okay. He autographed the card, gave me the card. I gave it to my mother. And some years ago, I said, Mom, where's that picture, you, uh, that card I gave you from uh, George Bush? Oh, I put it with the picture. What picture? And here's a picture of her with him giving her an award in Central Intelligence. And she had other pictures of other directors also giving her awards at Central Intelligence. So I was like, I guess he did know her. But when I was talking to him, he made some comment about, 
You know, if the American people knew what we had done, they'd run us out of town on a rail, tarred and feathered. Had no idea what that was, and I wasn't going to jeopardize my security clearance for a White House clearance, Capitol Gallery Pass, and DZ Police Pass by asking him the question, what are you talking about? You know, because it must have been something serious. And I, when we talked about this, I told you that what uh, I think happened in the, in the motorcade during the Kennedy assassination and, and based on something that my mother had me doing when I was younger. And I could see the same thing going on in the, in the front seat of that car. And all the things point to the fact that it was obviously, this was a major hit. All the shooters missed and, and the driver took the fatal shot, but nobody's going to accept that because they're saying, Oh no, the secret service going to have done that. They've been done that. Da, 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 da. And the excuse they gave about why Kennedy reached up to his throat, he got shot from the front because pain travels at the speed of a bullet to the brain. The brain cuts off most other sensory input to keep it from going into shock. He reached for where he felt the pain, which was at his throat. And that, that wasn't a magic bullet that hit him from the back. And the driver turned around not once, not twice, but three times when his passenger, which is his boss, turned around once and then started moving in tandem with the driver to block his view and block the view of people looking in from the side of the car. And with the driver turning around to his right, he was blocking the view of anybody behind him with his backs. Why would he not take off if you knew that shots had rung out? But he sat there and turned around three times. And the third time he turned around, Conley had laid down in his wife's lap, getting out of the line of fire between him and JFK. And then that's when JFK went back down and around. And the, the doctors drew a big gaping hole over his right behind his right ear that's an exit wound now how do you get this kind of stuff this details and nobody accepts the fact that uh, this man was set up and he was taken out by one of our clandestine organizations anyway yeah it had to be cia from start to finish and here's what i think uh, just to give you a few quote bullet points of my own like yours uh like I say, my stepfather, John Stringer, took the JFK autopsy photos at Bethesda. And um, I, I, I think that, that the Kennedy clan, they, they, they thought they were going to be a dynasty for 20 years. And uh, they were not a member of any secret organization like the CFR. So the establishment wanted them gone, wanted them out. So it was extremely important to remove Kennedy and then remove uh, his brother. But I think the single most important piece of, well, there's two, two important pieces of evidence of conspiracy, or three. One is, do you remember the Oswald Double in Mexico City uh, the summer before the assassination? That is evidence of an intelligence agency planning this whole thing. Because, number one, it proves they knew something was going to happen later that year. It proved that they knew that Oswald was going to be involved in some aspect or level, perhaps as a patsy, but at some level. 
And number three, they wanted to set him up. They, whoever this double was, was supposedly meeting uh, a KGB Department 13 agent in Mexico City, a Russian agent. And that was their Department of Assassinations, Department 13. So this was a warning. Once the assassination actually did take place later in the year for all other intel agencies to stand down, leave it alone, don't investigate, don't disclose. And the reason is because then we would be risking World War III with, um, with uh, Russia, mm. if Russia was even remotely or possibly involved. Now, that's one major evidence of conspiracy that proves an intel agency was behind the whole deal. Who else would know that Valery Kostikov of Department 13 of the KGB was in Mexico City and have a double looking like Oswald meet with him. I mean, that is one in a trillion. It had to be an intel agency uh, plot plan. The second most important evidence of conspiracy was the trained U.S. Army intel, intel units were told their assistance was not needed. They were going to send one to 200 men to, to Dallas. William McKinney of the 112th Military Intelligence Group at 4th Army Headquarters Fort Sam Houston went public and he stated that he protested violently when they were told to stand down rather than report with their units for duty. So, um, and I think the third uh, evidence of conspiracy, you look at, uh, I don't know, somebody like David Montick, MD, PhD, he's proven JFK was hit at least four times and Connolly was hit at least once. One shot missed, that's six shots, not the official three, that proves conspiracy. And so, one more. Uh, his name is Bolton. Um, he was uh, Secret Service, the first black Secret Service agent that uh, Kennedy had placed on the Secret Service. Uh, he was going to testify in front of the Warren Commission and tell them that, hey, they had information about attempts that were going to be made in Florida and I think Chicago on Kennedy. And before he was supposed to testify, they put him in jail on some trumped-up charges about some drug dealer or something that uh, he was getting kickbacks from or something like that. And when he got out, he wrote the book uh, Echo Adili Plaza and telling his, his side of the story of what was going on because they wanted him out of the way so he couldn't testify and tell them about those other attempts. And if, if the word is correct – that the driver and the his passenger the, in the shotgun seat, they said they never turned around. But in the Zabruder film, you definitely see both of them turn around, and the driver turns around two more times, and he should have been on the gas getting the heck out of there. But they, Kennedy had to die in front of that school book depository because if he had gotten to the hospital – and they'd saved him, he would have said, yeah, I got shot in the throat, and their whole thing would have fell apart. So I believe it. I believe it. I, I wrote a separate book. I actually wrote three books, a trilogy of books, Surviving the Deep State under my pen name, Muir Taylor. And in my uh, chapter on this JFK situation, and I cover every aspect of the deep state. This is a very minor part of the deep state JFK, but it was very important because if you understand that, you can really understand everything. Perry Raymond Russo was an insurance salesman from Baton Rouge, and he was in Ferry's, uh, David Ferry's apartment in New Orleans in the fall of 63. He overheard a discussion of how to kill Kennedy, make a getaway. He said the plot involved triangulation, diversionary shooting, 
and to sacrifice one man as a patsy. And uh, Shaw, Clay Shaw, his involvement with the CIA speaks for itself. Later, it was revealed after the trial, where he was found not guilty, of course, that he was a contract agent for the CIA. And uh, Lyndon LaRouche did a very interesting study uh, on the Permendix Assassination Bureau. It's a French intelligence dossier on the company, singled it out as funneling 200 grand to the OAS and the attempted assassination of de Gaulle. I think a year earlier. So I think it was funded in Europe. It was planned uh, in America. And I think the whole thing was CIA start to finish in terms of planning and execution because there's no other explanation. You had you had about 200 witnesses killed within three to five years. And the odds on that are one in uh, what a trillion. So uh, that alone speaks for itself. Yeah. The uh, question is, are we ever going to find out the truth? Or are they going to rip that Band-Aid off at some point? Or is it going to, they're going to try to keep that under wraps as long as possible? That's, uh, you know, but it's all, all of this stuff is this nation state where we're not supposed to know anything. And all we are are just uh, their way of maintaining the status quo and the order that they want, but don't tell the people that this is possible or that's possible. Just keep them in the dark and let them believe whatever they want to believe, but don't let them have the truth. They'll, they'll tell you the truth because they know you don't know the truth. And they, they told us the truth about the Phoenix Lights craft uh, flew over Phoenix at 8 o'clock, and Ted Koppel gave me the opportunity to do a show about the Phoenix Lights for Nightline. And I talked to Frances Emma Barwood, who was the councilwoman who who uh, actually opened the, the can of worms on this whole thing. And she tells me how she was going into an open forum council meeting. And in an open forum council meeting, you can ask any question, and they have to give you an answer within X amount of days. And she goes in and she, she says, extra, the TV show, literally jumped out of the bushes, stuck a mic in her face and said, is the council going to investigate the lights that flew over Phoenix? And she knew nothing about them. But when she got in there, what was her question? Are we going to investigate the lights that flew over Phoenix? And they went bonkers. She said, they said, let it go. You're opening a can of worms. Don't go there. But she kept pushing. So then she became a political cartoon in the, in the newspaper with the Starship Interflyers flying in one ear and coming out the other. Uh, and, but she, she, she stayed on her guns and persisted. And I'm like, and most people wouldn't you know, really believe the stuff that's coming out of some of these things that people are telling us. Because she told me a second story. They always tell you a second story. She said that there was the uh, veteran cemetery, and they wanted to build a road through this, the cemetery, but the council said, no, no road will be built. Then she gets a call in the middle of the night, you better get out to the cemetery. So she gets out there with a friend, and here's these dump trucks, bulldozers, getting ready to build this road after the council said no. At first she said she thought that they could probably stop them, but then they realized they could get plowed under, and nobody would ever know what happened to them. So they got other people to help and they stopped them. But then in, the cemetery went from local control to national control. 
by the time it came back to local control, she said all this acreage was missing. And she said that the, I think it was the mayor, someone's a realtor and they, this was prime land. So they were trying to get a hold of the land. And most people won't believe stuff like that because this is the kind of stuff that goes on behind the scenes that most people aren't even privy to. But she's telling me a story that most people would go, oh, I don't believe that. But this is the kind of stuff that happens. Uh, Ted gave me this opportunity to do a story about uh, about uh, Project Disclosure, Stephen Greer's uh, coalition of over 450 people at the time. It's probably larger now. And I'm talking to the third-ranking guy in the FAA during the Reagan administration, John Callahan. He's telling me about how the Japan airline flying over Alaska is encountered this huge craft. And he radios the tower. They've got a communications going on. He says, this thing is above me. It's below me. And on radar, they see this huge return coming back. He's flying a 747, and he's dwarfed by this thing. He said it was like the size of two aircraft carriers in the sky with smaller craft coming and going from the bigger craft. And these kind of things exist. I'm looking at the plane, the window of a plane that I'm flying up to Manchester for a presidential uh, debate or whatever for Nightline. And out from under this plane comes this huge craft at about 10,000 feet below us, just hovering above the dense clouds. And I'm knowing the pilot had to see that. And you see things like this, people don't talk about it. And that's what the problem is. Most people think, nah, I'm not going to talk to this about my na- to my neighbor about this. I'm not going to talk to my coworker about it. I'm not. They walk around with this stigma that if they say anything, they're going to be looked at as a kook. Well, I think those days are gone. So people should open their mouths and start talking about what they really know to one another. So let me get back to you and stop talking. Um, so we're about five minutes out from going to break, but before we do, how has your life been when you started investigating this? Were you harassed? Did anybody try to dismiss you and shoot your book down and things like that? Well, I, you mentioned uh, airline pilot sightings. Uh, let me relate a, uh, an associate of somebody I, I know of, John Lear, the son of Bill Lear of Lear Jets. He uh, sighted as either a co-pilot or captain of, a, of an airliner in the late 80s. He sighted a, uh, he had a similar UFO sighting, and he was interviewed by a newspaper about it the next day. And once it was published, the day after, he was called into company headquarters, and they gave him six weeks severance pay and said they didn't want to hear from him again. So uh, that used to be the, uh, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, that was the atmosphere that we were in. I think it's a lot better now. I think back then, I don't think Navy pilots were allowed to, uh, you know, were allowed to uh, report these incidents. Um I know of people that uh, have attempted to report these incidents to their uh, commanders pre-2000, and they said that the uh, commanders basically got uh, visibly angry 
and uh, just said they don't want to hear about it. And if you want to have a good career, don't tell me any more about it and just be quiet. So that was pre pre year 2000. I think that was the, uh, the attitude. Now, in terms of uh, personal experiences, I, uh, I've had a few strange uh, reactions, uh, 99% positive, but there's always that 1% factor. And uh, I don't want to give any credit to the 1% factor, so I, I better not discuss it. But there, there is always the, uh, uh, you know, there's always that person that's out there that um, for one reason or another is not, uh, is not open. Uh, and is not open to information uh, because of their preconceived notions or whatever. But I, I think I think about 70 to 80 percent of the U.S. populace right now is very open. Uh, and in fact, I think we've almost been conditioned to a certain extent. You look at the movie with Steven Spielberg back in the 70s, 76, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and you look at what Hollywood has come up with. Uh, ET and all of that, uh, I think, uh, and then now you've got this Pentagon report. It's almost like we're being conditioned in steps. Now, the the previous generation to us, uh, the World War II people, the uh, 1930s people, they were scared to death of this topic. In 1938, Orson Welles did his uh, War of the Worlds uh, scenario. Uh, it was a radio show. You, I'm sure you're very familiar with it. And, and literally tens of thousands of people panicked and uh, it was, they had very good actors in it and he was a good director and they thought it was real. So, and I think, I think for decades afterwards, I think the government was concerned this would be the problem. And this is why they, uh, especially the U.S. government, uh, why they never said anything to anybody. So, uh, but I think that, I think that's changing. So, um, I think we're almost at two o'clock too, so I'm going to let you uh, let you transition. Okay. Um, yeah, we're uh, definitely at the bottom, uh, coming up on the bottom of the hour. Uh, you're listening to the other side of midnight. Our guest is Gerald Eastwood, and uh, the title of the show is Beyond the Pentagon Report: The, <clears throat> the Identities and the Agendas Behind UFOs. And we are going to return right after we finish this break, and we'll bring Kinthea back in, and she'll help me uh, clean up the mess I made talking all this time. <laughs> all right. Enjoy. <laughs> Side of midnight.com. 
tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. side of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought join club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back to the other side of midnight. Your host for tonight is Keith Morgan. That's me. And Cynthia. And our guest is Gerald Eastwood. And we're also going to have uh, Robert Morningstar on with us in, in a minute. And he's got some interesting stuff about the Kennedy assassination to contribute. So let's get right to them and see exactly what we've got to to see what's coming up okay guys uh, hello hi robert how are you i'm fine thank you so we were talking about the kennedy assassination and i hear you have some interesting information oh sure the uh, ufo issue is a key element in the assassination of president kennedy and it actually goes back to the roswell recovery the army International, uh, excuse me, Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit report cites the fact that that, uh, future President Kennedy, when he was a congressman, learned of the Roswell report within days of it happening. And he was briefed by a congressman who was associated with a staff member of the Secretary of the Air Force. The Secretary of the Air Force in 1947 was Stuart Symington, the uncle of five Symingtons governor of Arizona when the Phoenix Lights uh, occurred. Now, I met Clive Symington in Washington, D.C. at the press conference at the National Press Club 
when Leslie Keen brought out her book, UFOs, pilots, officers, and government officials uh, speak out. I also met the pilot of the F-4, General Parvez Jafari, in the Iranian incident. And uh, another pilot who chased a UFO and shot it, uh, shot at it uh, in um, Ecuador and had to, had the house got scared out of himself. He emptied his rockets and he emptied his, uh, his uh, cannons into the UFO and he just saw the, um, the ordnance uh, just bouncing off. He chased the UFO to 50,000 feet and then was running out of fuel, did nothing to the UFO, then he turned around and the UFO followed him back all the way to the base and he was sweating bullets all the way to the base, thinking the UFO was going to do to him what he had tried to do to the UFO. Now, General Parvez uh, Jafari, he did chase this. I mean, he was one of two F-4s that was sent out, and the same thing happened to both of them. Their radio communications was knocked out, and their missile um, ordinance was also disabled. Now, he didn't get to fire. He didn't get to fire the missile. He just thought about firing the missile and started to engage. And he said that his cockpit just turned into flames. He just had an overwhelming sense of heat suffusing the uh, cockpit. He did see the white light leave the diamond-shaped UFO with uh, radiant multicolored lights uh, issuing it. And then he saw the what he thought was a missile. He saw the white UFO return. Now, here's the very interesting part of the story. I've investigated UFOs across the United States, across the world, Canada, England, and Germany. And when I was in England, I picked a book, a book related a story about a British doctor and an Iranian who made a pilgrimage to a mountain outside uh, Tehran where pilgrims go to visit the, the shrine of a, a Muslim saint. And the government puts up shacks or uh, cabins up there for the pilgrims can go there. They went up there, and they were in the cabin, dead of night. They heard noises. The door opened, and eight figures clad in black with big black almond-shaped eyes with their, their, the cloaks up to their up to their noses came in. They just looked at them and they said, there wasn't a word spoken, but they knew they were told to walk out and follow these men. They followed the men out into the darkness. They could hear rocks and brambles and, and sticks breaking under their feet. And all of a sudden they felt like they were, were walking on a Persian rug. They then went into a room with a big bay window and they saw the land fall away from them. They claim to have been taken to Greece, Yugoslavia. They saw Paris. They saw London. And then they were taken back. And when they woke up, they were lying on the road at the base of the mountain. The car that had been parked up the mountain is now on the road. They were dazed. They got into the car, started driving back into Tehran. They thought this was the same night. When they turned on the radio, they heard the report about the UFO. And they realized it was two days later. It's very similar to the Travis Walton abduction with missing time. So I related this story to General uh, Jafari. And when he heard it, he lit up and he said, you know, I didn't say this in the conference, but the next day I got a helicopter and I flew to the place where I saw the 
the UFO land on the desert floor. I followed it down, and I could see it landed, and rainbow-colored lights were radiating. It was illuminating the whole desert floor. And it was in this village where you told me, where you say this happened. So you had an alien abduction of two uh, professionals, an Iranian and a British doctor. Then they took them for two days. They dropped them in the same place, the base of the mountain. And General Jafari was able to confirm that that was the place where he saw the UFO light. So that's a, that's a very big story. I also have that uh, told in my YouTube channel. I did it program on this abduction. Also, Iran is the only country that has openly acknowledged UFOs actually for four years because President Rouhani, when he was a young boy in grammar school, was on his way to grammar school and he saw a UFO hovering over a mosque. So he cut school and he chased this UFO all over Tehran and each time it went over and hovered near a mosque and at one point it landed. But he said it was not a disc-shaped flying saucer. He said that it looked rectangular, and he made the uh, comparison with the saddles that they put on elephants in India. Now, this coincides with the so-called diamond-shaped UFO that was seen over Tehran. With regards to President Kennedy, let me go back to him. The U.S. Army put him on a watch list. He is item 10 in the IPU report. And it says, we've learned that Congressman John F. Kennedy, Democrat of Massachusetts, son of Joseph P. Kennedy, member of the President's Committee to Reorganize the Government, learned of these uh, affairs on a flight from Boston to Washington, and he learned it from the staff member. Now, that was Symington. Now, let me go to Five Symington. I went over to Five Symington, and I said to him, Symington, you know, that, that was, are you the son of Stuart Symington? He said, no. I'm the nephew. He's my uncle. Now, Five Symington also served in the U.S. Air Force. So we started talking about the Phoenix Lights. And he said, Robert, I saw it. He said, Robert, you, you're from New York. You know how wide a New, Sunday New York Times is, those two pages? Imagine opening up the New York Times to full width, holding that newspaper over your head. I did that. And the tips, the wingtips of this boomerang-shaped UFO extended beyond. That's how big it was. So this thing was huge. Going back to President Kennedy's death, President Kennedy on November 12th exchanged a hotline message with Nikita Khrushchev. He called on Khrushchev to share details of their UFO research with us because President Kennedy and Premier Nikita Khrushchev, were afraid, and rightly so, that a certain faction of UFOs, there are several groups of aliens visiting the planet, two of them are hostile. And they felt that this hostile group was trying to lure the United States and Russia into a nuclear war by pretending to be incoming nuclear missiles, the fast walkers. These are the, this is the term that the Air Force gave them. UFOs would come over the North Pole and start streaking down over Canada. They were picked up by the Dew Line and the Muse Line. Dew Line delayed early warning system, the Muse ballistic missile early warning system. And then they'd be coming over Canada, heading for our major cities, 
and it would it would just drive Cheyenne Mountain crazy. They'd go to DEFCON 2 and then DEFCON 1 and ready to launch a counter-strike, and then they'd stop, dead stop in the air and go vertical, straight up and disappear. Now, this was happening to Russia, and it was happening to us, and President Kennedy's first UFO crisis happened 12 days after he was inaugurated, and Robert Dean, to whom Cynthia referred, told the story. He was in NATO, and he had a cosmic top-secret clearance. And on February 12th, a huge fleet of UFOs overflew Eastern Europe, crossed over Germany, crossed over France, which was part of NATO at that time, crossed over England, turned north, went over the North Sea, turned back to the east, flew over the Scandinavian countries, went back to Russia. And President Kennedy was alerted to that, and they thought that that was a bomber, um, a bomber fleet from Russia that was going to do a nuclear attack. So this was the main problem. In the same letter exchanged with Khrushchev, he called on Khrushchev for mutual cooperation in science and for a joint venture to the moon. And President Kennedy issued a directive to the CIA and all the services, the Air Force, the Army, the Navy, the CIA itself, and he wanted a list of all black projects on his desk by February 1964 because he was going to tell the American people the truth of the alien presence on our planet. Um, and, President and, Kennedy was not shot by the driver. My main, main claim to fame, my first one, was proving that the Zapruder film is an optical illusion a consciously engineered MK ultra mass hallucination. And at the point where the driver turns his head, he turns his head back and forth in one eighteenth of a second, which is humanly impossible. The glint of the sunshine off the Vaseline hair of Roy Kellerman. William Greer was the driver. Roy Kellerman was, uh, you call him, shotgun. Uh, that's been mistaken and misconstrued in, into a gun. Now, William Greer did draw his gun. He did draw his gun. I found that in, in the Alkins photo. But everything's been doctored. And until I got on the scene and started applying gestalt psychology and explaining how these optical illusions and delusions were created, everyone believed that the Zapruder film was real. real. Now, last point about Kennedy. President Kennedy was a member of the Office of Naval Intelligence. In World War II, he manned the PT boat. The PT boat was really a spy vessel. It was a stealth spy vessel. And he was stationed on Guadalcanal. Lo and behold, I investigate Guadalcanal. And I found out that for over 100 years, the people of Guadalcanal had been plagued by lights that come out of the sea and fly into the mountains in northern Guadalcanal, they go from the mountains into the sea, and fishermen who've been foolhardy enough to go there to investigate the dragonfish, this is what they called it, the dragonfish, wound up not coming back, disappearing, or coming back with severe burns that were inflicted upon them by the dragonfish. You know, dragons breathe fire, so the Guadalcanal people labeled this UFO dragonfish. And it turns out that the Office of Naval Intelligence discovered there was a huge nest 
of undersea-based UFOs. And that is one of the reasons that we conducted the nuclear atomic tests that we did on any Wetok Atoll and uh, Bikini Island. So in a nutshell, I'm, I'm just wrapping this all up because uh, Mr. Anderson, uh, you, uh, excuse me, Mr. E- Eastwood, you covered a lot of territory, and I commend you uh, for all of that. Uh, with regard to the Skinwalker Walker Ranch, that creature has a, a name or a type. I have in my possession an MJ-12 briefing document dated 1989, and it lists four kinds of extraterrestrials with which the United States has had contact. Humanoid extraterrestrials who stand upright, have legs, arms, and heads like us. The greys, which are drones or slaves of the humanoids they use for piloting their spacecraft when they have to go into hibernation in long voyages. Non-humanoid entities alien entities, they say, describe them as creatures from a world where evolution took a different evolutionary path. And the one I want to bring to your attention with regard to Skinwalker, they called them transmorphic entities. And these transmorphic entities are described as pure mind energy from another dimension that's curious about our universe and can come into this universe, Lars, Uh, to explore it, and that they have the ability to channel their mind energy into matter and assume any form they wish to assume. So the transmogrification of this humanoid dressed in, I think you said, uh, 18th century clothes and bending over and changing into a wolf, this is one of those transmorphic entities. Well, thank you, Robert. You're welcome. I, I was just, you know, I'm, I'm talking about how the driver and the passenger were moving in perfect unison with each other. And, and that's what my mother showed me when I was younger. She wanted me to lean forward and block the view of people on my side of the car from looking in, seeing her playing with her purse inside the car. So when she moved towards the front of the car, I'd be leaning forward. She'd be moving Mm -hmm. back. I was moving in perfect unison. And The coincidence that the driver and the passenger are moving in perfect unison with each other, they're not dodging bullets because they're out of sequence with the bullets. Let me explain that. Let me explain that to you. The car came down Elm Street at 11.4 miles an hour, and they created an optical illusion that is moving at 35 miles an hour without having stopped twice. It stopped in front of the sign. It stopped at the grassy knoll. The forward movement, if you study that section of the film, they're both thrown forward because that's the moment when Greer hit the brake and came to a screeching halt. And the momentum threw both of them forward as it did Governor Connolly and the passengers in the back seat. Another thing is between the time the car passed the sign, which is heavily edited, I mean, they they admit that they lost four frames. They claim four frames. But... The fact is that Mr. Zapruder testified before the Warren Commission that he was filming the assassination and that when the car got behind the sign, he saw President's head and shoulders pop up above the sign and then drop back down. The film is doctored there. They cut that out. Now, 
the reason the president bolted up is he got shot in the back between the shoulder blades. And this is uh, Secret Service testimony. They heard the president say, oh, my God, I've been shot. And when he got hit in the back, he stood up and then he fell back down into the seat. The second point is the car crawled out from behind the sign. And so that's been doctored. Ten feet of film has been removed. Two lampposts have turned into one lamppost. And the easiest way that I can describe it to you is this way. Spread your five fingers out. Lay them out. And imagine you put scotch tape across your fingertips. But the scotch tape is not scotch tape. It's just a sticker there. It's the Zapruder film. Shot. Your thumb is shot number one. That's the shot behind the sign. Number two is the shot in the throat. Number three is the shot at Z295, which left the vapor trail, which I discovered, a condensation trail, left in the, in the air, that gl- glanced off President Kennedy's head. It didn't go in. It just glanced off ricocheted, and that bullet went into Governor Connolly. I don't have enough fingers, to be honest with you, because I'm at uh, my ring finger and my pinky finger. I should have another finger to ex- describe to you what happened with the grassy knoll. Three shots arrived, triangulation of fire, and they blew President Kennedy's head off. The first shot came from the right front. It was a mercury sulfide explosive bullet. This was seen by the CIA agent in charge of scrutinizing the Zapruder film. He got to see the uncut film, and Douglas Horn did a Dino Brugioni, that was his name. He saw the top of President Kennedy's head explode and go vertically with a huge silver flash of light. This was the mercury explosive bullet. That's been cut out of the Zapruder film. The debris that went up into the air rained back down and hit the door and hit the trunk and splattered the people. That's been removed. So for those last three shots, imagine you've got a a space, an interval of time between the arrival of shots. They snip the film between the first and second. They snip the film between the second and third, and they turn three shots into one inexplicable event. No one in physics has been able to explain the movement of President Kennedy's body at that Z313 um, junction. So okay. that's how the optical illusions are created. Okay, Rob. Yeah, thank, thank you. And uh, Mr. Eastwood, you have any comments on this? Uh, yeah, I, I do want to mention one thing that uh, happened and a very fascinating uh, uh, segment there. I appreciate that. Uh, I do want to mention one thing that happened at the Bethesda Naval Hospital, and this is a very knowledgeable group. You probably are familiar with it, but for, for the public and for the radio people. Um, and I think this is a key factor in understanding, you know, how, uh, how everything really works. Uh, this is a part of the story that not many people know. It involved one of my stepfather's close co-workers the same night they brought Kennedy's body into Bethesda. And I'll just tell you in two minutes what happened. At 4.30 Eastern Time, November 22nd, 63, three hours after Kennedy was shot in Dallas, Lieutenant Commander William Bruce Pitzer received a phone call at his home. Uh, 
uh, he was the head of the audiovisual department of the Naval Medical School, whereas my stepfather, John Stringer, was the Navy's chief photographer, and he had a couple years of medical school, and he did all the autopsies for um, autopsy photos and also the uh, x-ray photos. Anyway, anyway, we were getting back to his co-worker, Lieutenant Commander Pitzer. He was called to the autopsy of the president, and uh, there, of course, he would partner with my stepfather. Now, he took his own set of photos. He took a video of the autopsy. Now, what happened early the following week is a corpsman, Dennis David, stopped by Pitzer's office and found him editing film. It was a hand, he was hand-cranking a 16-millimeter black-and-white film. Uh, David watched the short movie. He, he saw the body of President Kennedy viewed from the waist up. Hands rolled the body back and forth. Pitzer reached a conclusion. He said the shot that killed Kennedy had to have come from in the front because there was a small injury wound and a large back exit wound, as, as you just went over a few minutes ago. So this evidence directly contradicts the Warren, which was, you know, obviously a classic disinformation document. But here's what, here's what else happened. Here's the, here's the end of the rest of the story. Uh, Bill Pitzer was shot to death on October 29, 1966. His body was discovered at 8 p.m., on the floor of the TV production studio of the National Naval Medical Center uh, about 4 p.m. The Navy ruled suicide, but his friends and widow disagreed. He had a strong personality. In fact, he'd been about to leave the military for a new career. Four days before his, his uh, demise, Pitzer told a colleague he was ready to submit his retirement letter to the Navy. He had lucrative offers from ABC and CBS, and he thought uh, I think the offers were connected with his assassination film. Joyce, his widow, said on the Saturday he was shot, Bill had gone to the office to write a speech uh, to deliver at a local junior college uh, where he was going to tell them about his future career and uh, how he was going to use the 35-millimeter slides and 16-millimeter film to, uh, to uh, jumpstart his career. Anyway... Strangely, Bill Pitzer's film of JFK's body was never found to date. The film vanished, and there was a ladder found next to his body. Right on the ceiling above the ladder was exactly the spot, according to his wife, where he kept hidden the JFK photo. That's a good story. Yes, indeed. Um, we have a couple of minutes. I wanted to say I've, I've gone through you know, the testimony of John T. Stringer and Robert Knudsen, and it's very clear that your, your stepfather, correct? John Stringer was my mother's yeah. uh, right. Okay. He was threatened because he gave an interview to David Lifton, and in that interview early on, right after the assassination, he described everything that the Parkland doctors had uh, described, word for word, the huge exit wound in the back of the head, uh, the brain matter extruding, but by 1968 he changed his uh, he changed his testimony, and he also testified be before the Assassination Records Review Board. So it's clear to me that uh, Mr. Stringer learned the lesson that uh, people who talked about it died, like uh, Commander Pitzer. The uh, last thing about Commander Pitzer is. He found a gun in his right hand, and he was a left-handed man. So a lot of people were assassinated in train with President Kennedy, and this was a deep state plot, and it's still going on today. The things that we are going through today are extensions of 
the JFK assassination. We got on the wrong track of history, and now some people are trying to get us back on the right track of history, and this disclosure is the first step in that direction. Okay, Um, Rob, we're we're into our break here. All right, uh, you're listening to The Other Side of uh, Midnight. Uh, Your hosts are Kenthea and Keith Morgan, and we'll be right back after this short break. over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel, or as an environment for your endeavors. Eight cents an episode, two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back to the other side of midnight. And we have been having a great conversation uh, talking about UFOs and the JFK assassination, which is what we are into right now. I'm going to ask my guests, um, I'm going to ask Gerald uh, what his take is on the UFO and assassination conspiracy part of it. 
because Kennedy was probably briefed on all of this stuff at some point. Um, now, whether or not uh, he was shot because of it or whether there was something else going on, it's so murky now. Everybody's got different uh, ideas and concepts about what actually took place in it. But what, what do you think really took place? Well, I think there, as we we have surmised, there was a secret cabal, which was comprised of certain uh, black ops elements of the CIA, uh, and I think also you had some very top uh, people in Dallas, possibly some Texas oilmen, possibly uh, some people in New Orleans, uh, possibly uh, Operation Mongoose. I think they all worked together. And I think it was a um, I think there were multiple reasons that he had to go because the the the, uh, the CFR people, the trilateral people and so forth, they could not control him. He never would become a member. None of the Kennedys would. So you'd have 24 years of Kennedys and the the New World Order group, which, you know, George H.W. spoke of, would not be able to take over the country as early as they did. So. I think he just had to go for multiple and a variety of reasons. And um, and I think when he said that he was going to splinter the CIA into a thousand pieces and start cooperating with uh, Khrushchev on space and UFOs and then make disclosure, I think that was uh, I think that was the final the final uh, episode. That was it. OK. Um did you have any questions for Robert? Because uh, uh, he's going to probably have to scoot here in a little bit. Oh, good. Yeah, I do have one question for Robert, and I've really sure. enjoyed uh, your uh, your briefing. What, what is your opinion? This we have not discussed this yet. Uh, do you? Are, I'm sure you're familiar with the Admiral Wilson documents. Uh, uh, Thomas and, Wilson. Yes. Uh, okay, Thomas Wilson. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you think they're real? Yes, I do. I really trust uh, Richard Dolan's uh, investigation, his research, and I believe Richard Dolan um, as much as I believe you, because uh, I know him very well for many years, and he would never make up a story such as uh, the, the, the detailed conversation that he had with, uh, with Thomas Wilson. The Navy's been trying to tell the people the truth about UFOs since inception. And it's been an internecine war in the military between the Navy or among the Navy and the Army Air Force. I say it that way because they really have one mentality. They were one unit until 1947, then they were split. Uh, I would like to mention with regard to the photography that your stepfather, when he testified before the assassination records review board and they showed him the pictures, he said... Those are not the pictures I took. They, right. They're, they're not framed the way I framed them, and that's not the kind of that's not the type of film that that I use. And the reason for this whole thing, I just want to sum it up. The reason is they got away with the JFK assassination by killing someone who was like a a fraternal twin in appearance. That was Officer Tippett. 
Officer Tippett bore such a close resemblance to President Kennedy that they used to rear them on the, uh, on the uh, Dallas Police Department and call him Jack and JFK. Jack Ruby said he shot Oswald because he killed a good man like President Kennedy. If you understand that President Kennedy, Jack, and JFK were nicknames they gave to Tippett, it explains the whole thing. So the back of the head shot, where you see the hand holding up the head, that's Tippett's head. The profile shot, the body in the morgue, I call him the Bethesda victim. That's Officer Tippett. And I've proven that beyond the shadow of the doubt. The moles on the neck, the, the little break in the nose, the nose is different. But they had uh, the Michelangelo of morticians work on him to dress him up, shave his eyebrows, shave him up, plaster the wound. And that's the real deal. Didn't Jackie make a comment about that doesn't look like... Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up. In William Manchester's book, they were having a debate over whether to have an open casket in the rotunda or not to have an open casket. And so they talked to Walt Brown, Arthur Schlesinger, Jackie Kennedy, and Robert Kennedy conserved. And uh, Arthur Schlesinger said... You know, when you look at it from a distance, it looks like him. But when you get close, it doesn't look like him at all. And then Robert Kennedy, it does it look like Jack, but it's, it's not Jack. And Mrs. Kennedy said, that's not Jack. That looks like something out of Madame Tussauds Wax Museum. You can find that in Death of a President by William Manchester. And I'll remind you, William Manchester wrote a very, very detailed an historically accurate book. And then he was sued. Johnson protested. Jackie protested. He was sued. And if you read the book, you get the impression that he was made to rewrite it. The impression I got was that he took a thousand pages and then he cut them all up into individual pieces. Then he glued them all back together. And the way to go through William Manchester's book is with a yellow marker. And, and for me, anytime it said Tippett, yellow marker, yellow marker, yellow marker. And he was trying to tell people the truth. So is but, Tippett buried at uh, Arlington? That's why I've never been to Washington. I've never been to Arlington. And I'll tell you one more thing. I sent this information to John F. Kennedy Jr. He passed away. And, July 16th, which was three, three days ago. I sent this information in all detail with all the, all the photographs. And I said to him, don't be afraid of those photographs. They are not your father. They are a man who was involved in the plot, and he did not live to see sunset on November 22nd, 1963. It's very, it's, it's very, very deep, deep stuff. Uh, I mean, I'm very intimately involved. A lot of this is revelation, I'm telling you. Which son, did, this, which son did you send this letter to? The only son, John F. Kennedy Jr. And it was after that letter that he came out with George Magazine and uh, began to expose it. He was planning to expose it. You, you know, people think he named it George after George Washington. It was a double dig. He was saying George for George H.W. Bush. We have pictures of George H.W. Bush, E. Howard Hunt, and several other 
uh, CIA agents who were there in Dili Plaza watching and orchestrating this global theatrics. So, and how many this, years ago did you send this? Oh, that was oh here. Here's, I'm glad you reminded me. This would have been around 1994 that I sent. It was hand delivered, hand delivered to uh, Jackie. And, Robert, uh, and John F. Kennedy Jr. Now, let me tell you this. I have never been to Washington to visit the grave because I don't believe President Kennedy's body is there. And I wrote this to John F. Kennedy Jr. When Jackie was buried and her body was interred at Arlington, if you look at the videotape, you will see John F. Kennedy go down to the grave of Jackie. He kneels down, makes the sign of the cross, and he steps up, starts walking away. As he walked away, he turned toward the eternal flame and where President Kennedy's body is supposed to be. And I thought that he was going to kneel there. And I started yelling, screaming at the television, don't do it, don't do it. I mean, it's really very emotional for me. And he went over there. He almost genuflected, and then he thought of it. He kissed his hand, and he tapped, he tapped the stone, and he walked away. Those are facts, and you can verify that by looking at the video tape. And I was very gratified because I think that would have been a total desecration. All right. This, uh, this is what has to be known. This is what has to be known. Yeah, Robert, we're coming up. Uh, this is the last uh, half hour. Yes, I'm going to bail out right now, but thank you. And I would like to, to have Mr. Eastwood's contact information so I can share all of this, uh, my documents with him. I'm sure he will appreciate them. Okay. Please, enjoy it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, so Gerald, is there, um, what is the um, major, um, where does the major UFO and um, incidences that really stick out in your, in your mind that, I know like Barney and Betty Hill and the Roswell and uh, things like that uh, pretty much are, you know, they are history, but is there anything else that you think most people don't know about that should know about in the UFO field? Well, let me think. Uh, of course, Travis Walton is, is fascinating. You've probably covered that on prior programs. Uh, Betty and Barney Hill, very, very interesting. Um, the, uh, there's a lot of unusual encounters that are, are quite bizarre down in South America that many people don't know too much about. I could chat about one or two of those. Um, so, uh, you know, there's, I could also talk a little bit about the Pentagon kill shot scenario. That's remote viewing. It's another one of their remote viewing programs. Now, they haven't had any disasters there. And, in fact, I don't think the program currently exists, but Major Ed Dames uh, feels that we are approaching what he would call the end. Uh, he's not sure whether an asteroid's going to hit the ocean or what, but uh, it's all in my book, so it's it's interesting. Not the end of the world, but the, the end of, uh, uh, you know, if, if, if a... They, NASA can find a, uh, an asteroid up to about one kilometer or close to it. Uh, and uh, I'm sorry, one kilometer and above, one kilometer and below, it has difficulty. 
at that level, it can destroy a, a major state, but it cannot destroy the world. But uh, anyway, the, the Pentagon kill shot scenarios uh, covered pretty much in my book. That's that's a topic unto itself. Um, well, Daryl, can, can you just say a little bit more about that when you're talking about remote viewing? Are they... Are they viewing these craft? What what are they viewing, and why is it called the kill shot? Oh, okay. Let me let me talk about that for just a moment. I guess we have five or ten minutes, so yeah, that'd be a good way to end it, possibly. Not too many people cover this. Major Ed Dames was part of a CIA and a jointly sponsored project involving remote viewing. He stated this project saw the end of days. Now, again, I, I think the world's going to continue for, you know, forever. But the the end of days just means, um, I don't know what he means by that. But uh, he says it's being tied to a series of major solar flares over a one-year period where Earth was unprepared. Uh, in a recent interview, he was asked whether an asteroid such as Wormwood may have been the cause of the solar activity and the flares. He wasn't certain. He implied it was possible. Uh, what again? What they do is they uh, remote viewing is used for a number of uh, scenarios, and I don't know exactly how it works, but it's uh, it's an it's a, a scientific experiment, uh, and it revolves parapsychology. The military knows about it. A lot of researchers know about it. Uh, anyway, Major James has this kill shot theory, and I think it also could be based on a large object passing between the Earth and the Sun. Uh, that might create some EMP effects. Um, but here's what he says in his web website. During the top secret remote viewing CIA and U.S. Army research program, trained viewers, that's it, trained viewers, that were normally tasked with foreseeing the outcome of war-related events began picking up on a future occurrence that appeared to mark a dramatic shift in global life. At first, these viewers, along with Major Ed Dames, the program's senior operations and training officer, had feared that they were looking at a future nuclear war. But this was not so. It turns out, after years of remote viewing sessions, the event is, in fact, a series of possible solar flares that are very devastating to the Earth and may cause billions of dollars of damage uh, to our uh, electrical grids. Uh, now, normally, you may not take such a warning seriously, but the remote viewers did have a pretty good track record. They, uh, the disaster in Japan, uh, a mysterious crop fungus, a 9.0 earthquake. They've they predicted a lot of these things before. And here's, I'll, I'll just read about six bullet points of what he says. That's kind of synopsized his current views. He's retired. He does seminars, I think, at this point. He's stating that Russia has restarted their remote viewing program. Uh, he says Russia and China are about to replace the petrodollar. Uh, he says uh, stay away from large cities. Uh, he believes the western Pacific coast is going to have problems. Uh, he said avoid earthquake zones. He said multiple solar flares may damage the grid. Uh, he's concerned about nuclear power plants in the U.S. Northeast. Um, and he just says, you know, education and reading. There's no end to education. So uh, I, I don't know. I say a lot about it. Actually, I, about 10 pages of the 170 pages of my book are on this topic. But it's, it's too detailed to go into right this very second. But that's what it's all about. And it's very interesting. And it's, you know, education and preparation and 
and strategic so, planning. So it's not it's not specifically about UFOs. It's about a foreseeing some possible disaster. Is what you that may occur to the Earth. Yes. Right. Well, well, we yeah. also live in a time where parallel universes is becoming more and more a plausibility. So, you know, it may or may not be, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The only reason, well, one reason I mention it is that apparently in that project that went wrong, uh, wherever or whoever it was, and, and maybe it was a U.S. project, maybe it was, uh, who knows, but uh, the one that uh, Nick Redfern wrote about and uh, Dr. Ray uh, was consulted on, that was uh, some kind of remote viewing. I wouldn't call it really remote viewing, but um, uh, it was parapsychological research, and it went really wrong. Now, his program, Major James, nothing ever went wrong there. In fact, they they picked up a lot of, uh, of uh, positives that they actually uh, – decided and, and determined we're, we're probably going to happen. So uh, a lot of stuff like this goes on. And and I'm I just, surprised there hasn't been a mention of UFOs in the remote viewing. That's right. He never, he doesn't touch on that topic at all. He doesn't touch that's on strange. it. strange. Um, so uh, I don't know why. But uh, as you say about UFOs, we're, we're not being told uh, a lot. Very little is released. Uh, so the public has to do its own research and critical thinking. That's my book. Uh, on a greater scale, Ed Dames and his team have tapped into the fantastic, the possible future of the Earth. It might be of interest, uh, you know, because we talk a lot about space, time, and dimensions. So I just added it as to add one more flavor to the book. But, um, you know, I have no idea exactly what they saw. And at this point, he has three or four theories. He's not 100% certain what's happening either. Well, okay, so I want to come back to this idea of the uh, UFOs being possibly interdimensional because I find that very um, actually more more convincing to me because of the way people that are having experiences, even Keith, you your experience, it doesn't seem like it's, totally of the physical are you getting any reports around that i mean like is there a bleed through of reality uh for me okay well you know uh, are we dealing with another dimension well if they can materialize and disappear at will and merge i think that might be a sign that we might be dealing with a, a separate dimension um i don't think we have enough information yet but um I would say that it's almost as if we're viewing a three-dimensional hologram, but one which has mass. There was a series of uh, sightings in Italy called the Urzi sightings. I think it's U-R-Z-I. He's an individual, and he lived in just an average guy, and he lives in this, uh, I think he lives in Milan now, but he lived somewhere else before. And he had a number of, uh, he, he took some incredible videos. I mean, dozens and dozens of incredible videos, daytime and nighttime, of UFOs. And then he moved, and he thought, well, I'll never see them again. And when he moved to this city, he had a window at the top of his house. And he said one night, he just thought, I'm just going to open the window and look outside for a while. And he said, in about 20 minutes, there was an amazing light show out there. And he said this continued, and he took another another 15 to 20 videos. They followed him. So uh, 
I don't know what's going on, but uh, I think the problem can't be solved quite yet. It's very possible they are interdimensional uh, because that would explain almost everything. In fact, there was one uh, case in Britain that seemed to indicate that. It was called the Marconi Object. That was a British defense industrial company. They, they did top secret high risk projects. They're in Frimley, England. They had a company headquarters, a testing zone there. Anyway, a security guard in 76 was a night patrol. And uh, th this facility housed top secret info on Britain's nuclear sonar, infrared, I think ballistic capabilities. Anyway, he was walking down a corridor. He noticed a blue light emanating from underneath one of the doors. He opened the door and in a corner over an open filing cabinet, shuffling through piles of top secret documents, he saw what he described as an extraterrestrial being. He said it was humanoid. Uh, it had a light, light uniform with a blue glow. It turned towards the guard, and in a blue haze, it just disappeared. Mm. So that's odd. The guard reported immediately. The complex went into lockdown. The next morning, the guard was under military, medical, and psychiatric care, and he never returned. So uh, th th this, this seems to indicate a dimensional aspect. Right. Well, one thing I've also noticed is there's two UFO researchers I know. One is uh, Bruce Cornett and the other is Wilbur Allen. And both of them have filmed UFOs and they seem to have a telepathic connection with them. So like they'll get the message. I mean, like Bruce used to talk about it. And he, this was before there was digital cameras. And he would get the message to take his camera and he'd go out and he'd start taking photos and if he ran out of film the the craft would just hover and stop while well, he changed his film and when his film was ready they would continue and he he took some amazing amazing uh shots of formations and the same with Wilbur Allen he he seems to have this telepathic connection so it makes me really um consider this it's more than psychological. It's this uh, inter interspecies telecommunication kind of experience where I, I think that they really are wanting us to know about them. Otherwise, why would they make themselves visible to these two researchers, these two photographers? Like they're doing a light show. I mean, it was amazing the photos that Bruce would come up and the same with Wilbur. Yeah, exactly. I uh, I totally agree with you. I think there's uh, I think there's an element that something as sterile as the Pentagon UFO report, 13 page document, that it doesn't consider. It doesn't consider all the all the uh, facets of the of the diamond that we're looking at. It, it's a very narrow report, and uh, I think it's I, an I, insult, frankly. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. It's a whitewash, I think. Yeah, it is. Uh, now, it's not the fault of Louis Elizondo. He's a smart, sharp guy. But his scope was limited by, by mandate. And uh, and the real report is being uh, shielded from us. Again, they will not release it. So. Hmm. But I appreciate the opportunity to have uh, talked to everybody tonight and around the world and uh, talked to you your people as well and uh if richard is uh listening uh, uh, uh thank you very much for the uh the exposure and time tonight well thank you um you want to tell us a little bit about your podcast i know you have a when is it on how often is it on 
Oh, okay. It's uh, it's not a fixed schedule, but basically, if you go on Audible or any of the major podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and just enter Gerald Eastwood, the Pentagon UFO Report, then uh, you can just subscribe or listen. It's streaming, of course, to the latest episodes, and and there's there's a a block of inventory in there. And uh, there, the webpage also describes a little bit about me and about my book, Beyond the Pentagon UFO Report, which is an e-book and printed book on Amazon as we speak. Uh, that's where 75% of the books are sold nowadays, and uh, that's where my books are, and uh, that's that's the deal. So I understand that you have, uh, what is it, three fiction books that are under a pen name? Oh, I do have three books. Right. Actually, they're nonfiction. Actually, oh, they're, they're nonfiction. nonfiction. Okay. Yeah. Uh, they're nonfiction, but it's uh, made almost, the talk about the deep state almost sounds like fiction, but uh, one is called, uh, yeah, I wrote those on just to protect myself one more layer because I thought those books could upset certain people in certain places. I, I wrote under a pen name, uh, my mother's father's name, Muir Taylor. Anyway, that's the pen name, and the the first name of the book is Surviving the Deep State, and that talks about all of the different elements of the deep state, Uh, everything. It covers everything. Uh, And then there's two other books. Uh, You must have silver. That's economic preparation. I'm talking about the metal silver. It's an economic strategic preparation book. And the third book is called Iran, the Event. Uh, That is a potential occurrence obviously uh in the near future where we may go to war in the middle east against those people and what we can do to protect ourselves and what that that war might be like and how it may affect us um from a standpoint of uh you know operational security and strategic relocation and those sort of things so those are my books surviving the deep state well thank you so much we are at the end of the show here We've been having a lively discussion with uh, Gerald Eastwood and Robert Morningstar joined us. And we look forward to hearing more about what you're doing and tune in to his Pentagon Report podcast for the latest update. And this is The Other Side of Midnight. And co-hosting are Keith Morgan and myself, Cynthia. Good night, all.